down to the next side. We will survive. It is not too good in this. Swimming through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish. Jogging is specialist, predatory and survivalist. Spinning heaven, fight from his lips. Burn slave driver. to time for an awakening on black talk radio network new media for the new millennia this is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective we find this program necessary because hosea 4 6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge but we as a people will turn this around proverbs 4 7 states wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom while by getting it an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to get involved in the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening, and the live stream will be playing there also. You can go to abitumi.com, that's A B I B I T U M I forward slash time for an awakening. They stream out of Ghana with the live stream playing there. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free radio app. And that TuneIn search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening radio program. With the live stream on the TuneIn app, drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Com. Time for Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type for type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you'll always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts, the various programs. On time for an awakening media interesting articles that you can read download at later times and share with your friends also check out that time for an awakening marketplace in our partnership with the bb2me always interesting things in the marketplace all the time uh, various african language classes classes on education economics social systems health and much much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora so again make that one of your favorites put that in your address bar that's time for an TimeForAnAwakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.08 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest coming on with us this evening, activist, organizer, and convener of the Nubian Leadership Circle, Brother Siddiqui Kamban, will be with us this evening. Uh, yesterday was the National Black Leadership Summit, number eight. Brother Siddiqui will be joining us to give us a little post-assessment. Uh, I'm here, the, Elliot. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Brother Siddiqui, we'll uh, put you on hold. We'll be right with you. Give us a post-assessment 
of the the uh, conference, and uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things with uh, our guest this evening, activist organizer and convener of the Nubian Leadership Circle, Brother Sadiqi Kamban. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not where you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. 
History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Uh, it's 7.13 here in this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia, 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellie. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm um, looking to um, get this update from Brother Siddiqui in relationship to this leadership conference, but also uh, in order to continue, you know, this month, you know, the big thing is about Juneteenth and, and we, you know, the whole thing of coming from going into the question about memorializing or acknowledging um, the, you know, the leaders that have actually fought for, um, black folks liberation in, in, in America. And I guess, um, what I'm looking forward to hearing in, in this um, discussion with brother Siddiqui is how that continuation of leadership and organizing is occurring, um, with men like themselves and women that are part of that process. You know, this is the, uh, uh, the eighth, uh, Nubian, a black leadership summit that they that was held yesterday, uh, uh, online and and also uh, um, in either Boston or DC, but we're gonna get some details and uh, a post assessment on what happened yesterday at the eighth Nubian leadership conference. The theme uh, for the listening audience was a. Uh, Ooh, I got it here. Uh, do, 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 do. Well, let's 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 get all that information from. Uh, oh, here it is. The theme was standing our ground in being and a black nation a building. Standing our ground in being black nation building bound. Our guest this evening, activist, organizer, and convener of the Nubian Leadership Circle, Brother Sadiki Kamban, is with us. Brother Sadiki, how are you, sir? Not bad. I've, I've been in Elliot for the last ten minutes trying to get in <laughs> the phone. I don't know, but I'm here. Oh, you, you're here loud and clear. I, I hear you loud and clear. You're all right. How are you, sir? Not bad yourself. I'm doing great. I'm glad to have you back on time for an awakening with myself and brother Richard. How you doing, brother Sneaky? Yes, sir, brother Richard. How are you? Fine, fine, brother Sneaky. Let, let's let's uh, let's get right into it. Let's talk about yesterday. Um, you know, you mentioned in, uh, in fact, the last time you were on, and also I was reading uh, the information that you sent. In the past two to three years, of uh, you, you've had uh, seven different summits and built several different cadres out of those summits. Uh, yesterday was the eighth. You had uh, uh, 
Student Minister Nouri Mohammed was one of the featured speakers uh, to close the conference. Uh, he yeah. was sent with the support of Minister Furkan. Uh, Cynthia McKinney was also the uh, a supporter and a speaker at last year's uh, 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 conference. Uh, talk, talk about the um, the work that was done yesterday, and also I'm yeah, listen. I'm excited about the the cadres that's being built. Uh, the number of of cadres and young people and older people that are involved. The floor is yours, uh, Brother Siddiqui. Talk about some of the things that was done accomplished yesterday. Okay, well, well essentially, Elliot and Richard, it was uh, all about continuing to build on the momentum that we've uh, built up in the last couple of years. Because, ironically, uh, you know, we talk about n- number eight. Um, when people people say, oh, they said, uh, Brother Siddiqui, we didn't know y'all been doing these summers for eight years. And so we know. So no, we've we've done eight in the last uh, two and a half years. And just you know, just to give you a little background on how we arrived at that point was that uh, oh, back in the nineties, uh, uh, it's my understanding that then, um, Minister Farrakhan encouraged then President NAACP uh, Ben Chavis to bring black black leadership together. And so essentially that was the formation of uh, what was referred to as NAILS or the uh, NAILS or the, uh, what was it, the, and that was the acronym for it, National African American Leadership Summit. And so essentially, you know, I was involved with that. It was based in D.C. and there were a couple of summits. And so I was even interim director for a, a while until uh of, uh, Reverend Ben was out there doing some organizing on the main man march and then he returned and took over. So essentially the uh, it didn't reach its ultimate goal as it pertains to bringing folks together and finalize something to stabilize it so that it would you know be there uh, for the foreseeable future and beyond. And so what happened was myself and others, you know, we were inspired by the potential of nails and so uh, I started doing a blog entry called the Nubian Leadership Circle and got pretty wide circulation. So folks are saying, well, why don't you uh, consider uh, going live with the concept? And so what happened was that, uh, oh, well, three years, two and a half, three years ago, I convened a meeting at uh, a hotel just across the D.C. line of Silver Spring, brought some folks together. And uh, followed it up a month later with a meeting in a restaurant in D.C. with about 30 folks and had a draft mission statement for the Nubian Leadership Circle. We went through it line by line, and that's how we reached the agreement. So then we said, uh, okay, well, we've got to move on this. So that's when we uh, started planning our first summit virtual uh, because, you know, what went down with the pandemic, what have you. So um, what it is is that in the planning stages, I had a conversation with Minister Farrakhan, and he said, well, Brother Siddiqui, what you're attempting to do is try to bring together black leadership uh, and to work in conjunction with each other and get the results you're looking for. Uh, he said it's going to take a lot of hard work and time, and he says rather than annually, he says, I suggest that you might consider doing it on a quarterly basis. So that's why uh, you're looking at at eight summits in two and a half years, we've been doing it on 
quarterly basis, you know, we, for our first summit, we, uh, closing remarks were made by uh, Mr. Farrakhan, and subsequently, you know, we've had Cornell West and former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney and, and others. And what we try to make very clear is that although the summits are important, that's not our ultimate goal. They are organizational vehicles, if you will. So essentially, getting back to what you were talking about with the, the cadres, is that they're working groups that have uh, co-facilitators for each. So we have like eight cadres. Uh, there's uh, family essence, economic development, land and food, communications technology, uh, spiritual renewal, art and culture, health and education, and uh, international advocacy. And so, as I stated before, the, the summits are important, but as I mentioned, they're uh, organizational tools, per se, for folks to come together to talk about the work that's being done. And when I say being done, is that in between summits, we have what we refer to as working shops, where the co-facilitators, because, you know, the co-facilitators, they all have um, folders, if you will, with uh, the email addresses of all the former uh, uh, participants, their respective cadres. And so what it is is that, like, for number eight, we sent out the notice uh, to all the participants from the first seven summits. And uh, we convened uh, yesterday the third, uh, and like I said before, it's virtual. And uh, so the, the program format basically is, you know, the, the introductory aspect. We start at ten o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and then I, you know, I I do like a, an introduction in terms of the history of of uh, the Nubian Leadership Circle, and then what happens is that we have the uh, breakout sessions for about an hour where the various cadres are going to their own specific sessions, uh, not only to update participants, but to talk about what's going to be going on in terms of the work itself. And then uh, after the uh, the breakout sessions, then we have uh, the, the uh, plenary sessions wherein uh, the co-facilitators uh, give reports about what went on their respective cadre session. And then after the completion of that, and we went to our uh, closing remarks by uh, Nation of Islam student minister, Nuri Muhammad. And so r really pleased. It was, uh, uh, it was very tight. And uh, when I talk about the, the summits, and they're important, they're important, but our ultimate goal uh, Brother Elliot and Richard, is that we want to have Nubian Leadership Circle uh, summer satellites all across the country and beyond, if you will. Like we have some folks involved with us, like from Haiti and France and London. And so the piece that is encouraging and maintains my energy around what we're trying to do is that folks essentially uh, are sticking with the process as it pertains to the work because there's a sense out there that, and I don't need to convince the both of you, that the way things are going, and the forces of white supremacy, I mean, they're fast and fluid out there. They're not hiding anything now. 
that we, in fact, better circle our wagons and, in fact, uh, build that black nation within a nation to be able to take care of ourselves because that's the direction that things are moving in. And more and more folks are starting to realize that and understand the fact that, you know, we need to come together and do what we got to do for ourselves. So um, we've done number eight. Um, I encourage co-facilitators to convene workshops in June, you know, to summarize what had been talked about and to continue to build towards uh, number nine, which will be happening in four months. So, you know, it's it's a, a, a work in progress, but I'm just encouraged by the fact that it seems to be growing in terms of um, the, the nature of, of the mission. A couple of questions, Brother Zadigi. What is the um, the dynamic of the ages of both the men and women, the sisters and brothers are involved? Does it span the gamut, or is it predominantly a certain age range, or it kind of goes across the board? I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Brother Elliot, because what it is is that, uh, you know, I've been to a number of conferences, and we have a tendency, and let me put it this way, we have a a youth component. This is the history that that I've experienced in the past, and so, you know, the youth would put their... Uh, position out there and you know we give them a standing ovation say yeah you know that they're our future and then we move forward a lot of the uh information or input or activity by young people will be kind of you know kind of <laughs> kind of ignored in some respects and so the standard that we've established in terms of the new leadership circle we don't have a youth component what we're saying is that if you're 12 or older and you look to want to do some work with us, then you register and you participate in one of the cadres just like everyone else. Uh, we, you know, we feel that that's uh, important. And the other piece, too, is that when we talk about leadership, uh, we're not talking about just like major organizations, which, of course, the goal is that we want to draw as many folks as possible, but um, an individual could be the head of an, a neighborhood association, we say that's leadership. Come on board and and get to work with us because of the fact that we're about trying to establish that national slash international network of uh, African slash black people about the spirit of emoja, unity, you know, and to uh, organize and mobilize folks and in terms and look in terms of what resources we have right now. And I think it's interesting. Uh, when folks say, oh, you know, well, you know, we don't have this as black people, we don't have that. And so I, I recently heard something wherein out of 222 countries, as it pertains to uh, the uh, GNP, you know, in terms of how much money that we as African slash black people, uh, we command almost $2 trillion dollars not billion, trillion dollars on an annual basis. So it's not that we don't have any money, it's just that we have it, but we spend it the wrong way. So um, what was explained in that survey is that out of those 222 countries, we as black people, building a nation within a nation would be ranked number eight in terms of wealth. So we can't be using poverty uh, as an excuse for us not moving forward. 
So we have a economic development component. And in fact, uh, we, we've opened up a bank account with a black bank, one United Bank, uh, and we're going to be, you know, moving towards independently being able to have an economic base with the support of the community across the country and do for self. Uh, brother Siddiqui, before I pass the mic to Brother Richard, the, um, of course, you mentioned about as long as you're 12 years old or, or older that you can get involved and, and, and be an active participant. Um, the facilitators of each cadre, now how does that go around? Does it does it kind of rotate? Each, everybody gets a, a shot at, at uh, facilitating the work, or, or how does that go around as far as the facilitators? Okay, what that is is that we have, like, co-facilitators for each cadre, and uh, for continuity's sake, uh, folks have that position in terms of leadership. They're the ones that convene, you know, the working shops or or that I work with uh, directly in terms of preparing for the um, the various uh, summits that we have. And so, uh, you know, on occasion, you know, we would have to uh, – uh, replace somebody, but like I said, from the perspective of continuity, um, we have folks who are in place who have dedicated themselves to, to provide that type of leadership, and to this point, I'm, I'm really appreciative of the fact of the amount of work and time that folks are putting in uh, in terms of our pursuing our mission. Brother Diggy, one more thing before I pass it over to Brother Richard. Um, we're looking at situations now and i was just talking to brother richard in private conversation about uh just over the past five to ten years how things have been moving rapidly in this country if we're watching uh to drive our people together you know it's 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 certain scriptures in the bible that talks about circumstances driving our people together um do you find that as an organizer that more of our people are willing to work with one another now as opposed to before when they were locked into, uh, I'm of this religious persuasion, you're not, so I'm not working with you. Uh, uh, I'm a Mason, you're not, so we can't work together. Do you find that a lot of people are tabling some of those, uh, uh, I would call them petty differences to establish working relationships with one another? Yeah, you know, it's, it's gradual. Um, but, you know, we have folks who reach out to us, you know, like the, like the, um, the brother from, brothers from uh, Haiti, you know, reached out to us. I had a uh, brother reach out to me recently. He in, in South Carolina, evidently, he inherited like 107 acres of land from his family and uh, plus some beachfront property. And he called because he, in fact, um, wanted to see if he could work we could work with him in terms of how he, you know, gets through that whole process. So what it is is that uh, along the lines of, of what you just expressed is that folks just understand the need that we got. Like I said before, we got to circle the wagons. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's really, um, I'm encouraged. Like, for instance, uh, when it comes to the whole issue, like I said, we have a land and food cadre. And so um, we've got uh, one of our co-facilitators, um uh, Brother Latron down at Atlanta, uh, he has a whole piece going on down there around, uh, like, for instance, we had what uh, the Nubian markets open up here in Boston. That's a whole other story. 
and found out that some of the goods that his company is supplying came up here to Boston. And so then you've got, you know, um, the uh, Black Farmers Association there with James Boyd, uh, this brother Yakini, Malik Yakini there in, uh, in Detroit. In Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the Nation of Islam's got their process. So what it is is that we're saying that uh, we've got all these different groups. You know, this brother uh, got a big uh, farming process in in uh, Rhode Island. Uh, we're just finding out more and more about this. So the intent is that at some point in the near future uh, that we're going to be calling these groups together in a mini conference saying, you know, we, we expect that you, you know, maintain your sovereignty, but at the same time, uh, how about coming together and just talking about how uh, we can share ideas and resources because, you know, our vision is that there'll be uh, trucks and railway cars out there that will be transporting goods, you know, foods that we need for us based on we are doing it for ourselves. So that's, that, you know, that's just part of where the direction we're moving in. And there seems to be a high level of um, of uh, support and folks want to participate. And, of course, you know, some of the longstanding organizations that, you know, are kind of looking at what we're doing right now. But I expect that uh, they're, going, they're going to come on board based on where this country is going. Brother Richard. Yes. Uh, you know, Brother Siddiqui, and again, I have to um, congratulate you for continuing to have that energy to do this work. Um, and I was I was wondering, because you brought it up, at, at, at that this – the genesis, and you put a time period um, in the 90s. Um, I don't know if this is fair to ask you. It, it, it kind of piggybacks on what Ellie was asking. Um, what do you see as the difference of the mo- of the moment, um, especially when we're talking about operating as a national entity from the 90s to now? Is there or is there not uh, a sense to you from your personal experience being a part of this process for that period of how we review this ideal of being a nation within a nation and, and going about that. Well, it's, it's really interesting because of the fact that uh, there is a dynamic out there of, uh, that we're fighting through that um, there's a perspective. And I don't know if you know, we have to blame ourselves, but I know like in many respects for uh, some of the younger folks that, uh, you know, because, you know, parents – always want what's uh, best for their children, just you know, just like my my moms and, you know, the whole thing like that. And so I think what's happened is the last generation or two, parents have been telling their children, look, things are good now. Uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't do well, so you do for you and don't worry about anybody else. So that's some of what we have to fight through. But we're getting a sense now that uh, based on the forces of of the energy of white supremacy escalating that uh, folks are starting to say, well, wait a minute now, <laughs> something, something just doesn't feel right. And so uh, maybe we need to be looking to each other. So <laughs> I think it's interesting you brought that up, Richard, because of the fact that, and I know, I, you know, I don't know how old you all are, but you know, like it wasn't too long ago uh, that I could be at a meeting and folks say, oh yeah, Sadiqi Cambon, a black black folk now. Oh yeah, he's a black nationalist. Of course, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but now I don't stand out that much when I'm at meetings. Oh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I uh, when it comes up when you make certain phrases or you bring up certain positions, um, but that's separatist. And, yeah. You know that that like you know that 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 comes up like automatic like it's a you know a precautionary you know like wait a minute now, but you know uh, um, but the the thing that that made me raise this question and 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 based off of your response. I have to follow up because it's in my head in relationship to, because one thing I'm noticing we're in the moment, and I don't know if you would agree, we're in the moment where reparations is being brought up. Um, when you talk about the 22, the $2 trillion we have and dollars that circulated, you know, based off of, our, I think mostly based off of our labor. Um, and, but we're hearing this demand um, for repair you know, from the government, there's various things. But my my thought is, and I'm, I want you to, uh, to see how you respond to this in relationship to leadership and in relationship to the national. My thought is, especially when I ask people, well, is this a nationalist effort? Are we asking for repair as a harm group? So I'm asking you, do you, do you, do you think that even with using the, the reparations moment, and how this is playing out in different states and and whatever that people are uh, black folks are moving in a nationalist moment without saying that they're operating from a, a nation within a nation context. If that made any sense? Yeah, yes, it does. And and let me just say, you know, that unfortunately, the reparation movement, at least from my experience right now in the conversations, folks, is somewhat in a state of disarray. Mm-hmm. And so when I, you know, there's something going on out here and, and you, we all know that, uh, COINTELPRO has not gone away. Yes. And there's all kinds of controversy going on. You've got like ADOS talking about, uh, the fact, well, if you aren't from this country, you shouldn't get it. And, and then there's the token response, like, uh, in, uh, uh, I think it's Edison, Illinois, where they've gotten a certain amount of money from the city council there for some housing. Then you've got uh, in D.C. Uh, what was the, the, the university there that uh, that Patrick Ewan and them played George, at? George, remember, right? Georgetown. Georgetown, talking about they might give uh, scholarships to some of the uh, descendants of the slaves who who actually built that, you know, that type of thing. So what it is, is a lot of division out there now and, 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 and chaos, which I don't think happens. See, my perspective is that first and foremost, that there should be a, a unified effort in regards to the uh, reparations movement and that, you know, we're owed trillions of dollars and that from my, my feeling is that, Hey, we come together united, we get that money, we don't send out checks because we'll go and give it right back. My my whole thing is that we we should have a an economic development fund, reparations fund that in fact is the folks who would have oversight would be uh folks from our community that are trusted and have, you know, that type of financial background and that folks would have to submit a proposal, you know, like they want to might want to build a hospital or start a school that would be evaluated to determine whether or not they in fact would get that type of funding. But right now, 
you know, I talk to folks in the reparation movement, and they just, you know, just like, for instance, uh, and COBRA got, got some funding a couple of years ago. People are fighting about who should get that money. I mean, it's, it's and like I said before, this is not happening by accident. So I've been talking to some folks about, even in terms of the NLC and how can it be seen as an independent body that tries to bring some folks together around reparations because of the fact that right now it's very divisive and chaotic and um, and it's it's really uh, depressing to see what's going on with that because of the fact that we can't be out there uh, divided about how this, you know, talk about, well, whether you were born in this country or if you come from another country, can how do you prove that you're descendant of uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. And, uh, but you know, you, you just have to be able to maintain your optimism and say, look, we're going to work this out and get it straight. And, and, and you brought up in, in bringing up in, in the whole thing of the leadership council. And I, I was wondering also, um, and I understand the process, the cadre and being able to define the areas and work through the, the working groups, you know, to continuously do the, you know, the work within those areas, the people who assemble. Um, I was wondering, and, I, and I'm bringing it up because I think these ideals is important to explore. How do you see um, us, how do we define leadership in this moment in time? Um, I, I understand the work that has to be done, but doesn't leadership um, connotates certain characteristics? And and just for, you know, the audience and, and myself, and, um, and since you're engaged in this, you know, help us define what you see as um, leadership that um, and you, that should be. What are the characteristics as you see? It? Well, well, for me, um, you know, just being very candid that uh, for some folks who claim leadership, um, they're opportunists. <laughs> you know, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But then, leadership to me is that. Uh, your goal is to do whatever is necessary to see to it that things move in a direction that is advantageous to your people in general. And so what that, you know, like I, I have people say to me, and first of all, people talk about, like even here in Boston and nationally, oh, Sadiki, you know, you're dedicated, you're a legend. I said, look here, I says. Um, my grandson teases me. He says, "He says, Dad, you don't let people call you a leader." I said, "No." I said, "I just do work for black people." And people say to me, uh, "Well, Sadiq, how have you done this for so long?" And I say, "Because of the fact that this is who I am. I don't get up one day and say, you know, I'm not going to do this. And this is who I am." And so, for me, the folks who I really, you know, can relate to are the folks who operate in that spirit. You know, like I've had to talk. People, um, in fact, one brother I was talking about the other day to some people because he was upset one day a few years ago. And I said, what's wrong? He said, I'm doing all this work out here. He said, I'm not getting any credit. I said, brother, it's not about getting credit. I said, it's about you doing the work. And I said, if you get some credit, that's a plus, but that's that's not why you're supposed to be out here. So the folks who are out here in the trenches, you know, like, like I get teased quite a bit. People say, well, Sadiqi, you got all these degrees, you could have made a lot of money. You know, I I know a lot of folks who made a lot of money and never happy in life. So for me, it's about those folks who dedicate themselves 
to do the work and want to make it happen and not the folks who are there for superficial reasons. Like I, like another example I gave, I remember many years ago, there was a brother who approached me about some work we're doing. He said, brother, I'm down with you. He says, you got me 24 hours a day and how much he respected what I was doing. Never saw him again. Another brother came in, got two children with him. He says, brother, he says, you know, I respect what you're doing. I want to work. He says, but, you know, I got a wife and two kids, and so I can only give you a certain amount of time. And the brother came through and did what he said he was going to do. So for me, it's about what is your commitment, not terms of uh, personal goals or, you know, getting a lot of awards. What is it that you're prepared to do as it pertains to work in regards to liberation for black people? And then I go from there. That's, you know, just in terms of are you sincerely in this in the name of benefiting our people? Or are you into the whole ego thing? Now, look, I tell people I got an ego, but you need, and I know you brothers, to do what you do, you got to have a certain amount of ego with integrity to do what you got to do to sustain your energy. But for folks who are just in it for glory, and like I said, I'm not going to get into names, um, you know, I just have no respect for them whatsoever. But for the folks who are out here every day doing the grassroots work and making themselves available, that to me, and that's why I said uh, in the initial presentation, when we talk about leadership for the Nubian Leadership Circle and folks come out, you could be head of a, a neighborhood association and work them to see to it that your neighborhood is secure and, and thriving. That's leadership, and you're welcome to join us. Hosting, hosting study groups, you know, um, discussion right. groups, um, dealing, you know, just dealing, I mean, helping uh, elderly move, you know, just to get their food, you know, if they can't go shopping. Right. Um, I, 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 I hear you. And, and Brother Elliot, um, there's one thing that as I was listening, Brother Siddiqui, you know, we've been talking about us being a, <clears throat> us meaning black folks in, as a, in general being a colonized people, right? Um, you know, so a nation is already, I like to operate that we're a nation already. Um, and what you raised, Brother Siddiqui, is that those people like yourself and others who do this work, not for fame or fortune or ego, those are the components to a nation that we may not even know we are, you know, and I'm carrying something that, you know, was told to me, told to me as far as, you know, we're doing this work. We don't even know why we're doing it but we know it has to be done. But that's the infrastructure of what a nation is. I just wanted to um, bring that up. Last thought is that, uh, Elliot, remember, um, what was it? Uh, His name just went out of my, um, Fred Hampton Jr. Mm -hmm. He asked a question to him, like, well, how do you know if the people are sincere? And he said, we'll be able to, you know, or or agent, we'll judge them by the work they do. Yeah, that's what he said. It sounds sounds similar to what Brother Zadiki just said. That's what, that's what, that's, that's, that's what brought, came to my mind when he when he was saying that. But, well, um, you know, I can give you an example of that. Is that um, here in Boston we have uh, Roxbury Community College, and that's our college, and it's had its ups and downs through the years. So what it is is that um, uh, it's RCC is celebrating. It's doing a one-year celebration. we got our sister who is the interim president right now doing an excellent job. Uh, so they're doing a one-year celebration um, in terms of, you know, school started in 73. It's one-year, 50th anniversary. So I was asked to be one of the, uh, the co-chairs, four co-chairs, 
because I've been involved in some form or fashion in the past when the school was having problems. And so I said, well, sure, I'm willing to do that. And so what it is is that uh, they wanted to have uh, 50 honorees, and including myself. And so when I talked to the sister, who's the interim president, I said, well, look, I said, I see the names here, and there are folks who are deserving some names. I said, uh, but I said, you know, there's, there's a problem I have. Um, like, for instance, uh, some years ago, the school was in trouble, and they were talking about, uh, possibly having the school being taken over by Bunker Hill Community College or Northeastern University. And so I called some folks and we formed the advocates for Roxbury Community College to keep C2 that didn't get taken away. And so in talking to the sister, I said, you know what? I says, I see these names up here that are being honored. I says, but I don't see the names of a lot of folks who were coming to that school every day and evening with me, doing, bringing their children bring in food. I said, in fact, back then, my grandson, who I raised, he's 27 now, but when he was a young little guy, four or five years old, he would say to me, Daddy, we going home tonight? And so the point I was making to the sister who's the interim president was that these are the folks who are unknown that was here to save this college, and they're not being honored. So what she did was she promoted and made it happen is that the 50th slot is reserved for the unknowns who dedicated themselves to saving that college. So that's why I'm, t I'm talking about the whole piece in terms of folks who you might not have ever heard of who are out there and do the type of work that's necessary to see to it that our community moves forward and thrives. And those folks who work with me, and I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying brothers and sisters would be bringing their children and food and be there into the evening with me, coming after work and what have you, Coming up with, we were literally running that college for a couple of, for probably about a month, until they brought in the interim uh, president at the time. So that's that's why when I hear you brothers talking about you know leadership and work, uh, that to me is uh, leadership when folks t take their time with their families to see to it that uh, they make some type of contribution to our community. Thank you. We're in conversation this evening with activist, organizer, and convener of the Nubian Leadership Circle, Brother Siddiqui Kamban. We're getting a, a post-assessment of the National Black Leadership Summit, Summit Number 8 that was held yesterday. Uh, you can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Brother Siddiqui, when you talk about the cadres that have been uh, formulated uh, through the summits, the eight cadres, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned them all by name, and and, mm -hmm. I, and I guess it'll be more being formed as as you move forward. Uh, and you mentioned the leadership, as far as the the age dynamic, it can be twelve twelve or older. It's no real stipulation unless you're under that uh, age of twelve. But talk about the the sisters that are involved because. You know, in, in some organizations and some of our people gathering, it's a problem when you have women being involved. And and this is just me. I, I think that uh, people that have a problem with women being involved, especially in leadership, don't really know anything about our culture as a people. Uh, they might have some European uh, uh, views about women that's kind of mixed in with how they're looking at things. But just talk about 
the sisters that are involved and, and some of the things that they help push forward in some of the cadres and in, in the Nubian leadership circle itself. Well, you know, it's interesting you brought that up because of the fact that uh, I'm I'm very much uh, into that whole gender balance piece there. And let me be clear, I'm talking about male and female. Uh, yeah. That's, mm-hmm. Go ahead. That's it. Stop. Y'all stop. And if you know what I'm saying. Yes. But, um, but the bottom line for me is, like, you know, you know, like my mom's was my hero. And so I tell people, you know, it, it came later in my life, but I say, I, you know, I stopped saying, you know, uh, standing behind every good man is a good woman. I say, standing beside every good man is a good woman. I says, but let's let's understand something. Like even with the man, man march and what have you, is that, you know, uh, see, I, I think like right now, we as black men really need to step up more. Because they talk about being the era of the woman, and that's because of that's the fact that they're they're stepping in and filling the gap. Because I think that we're slacking to some respects. But the bottom line for us, in terms of the Nubian leadership circle, is that hey, whatever you can offer, male or female, you're welcome. So you know, like uh, I'd say, half of our you know half of our co-facilitators are sisters. And of course, it's not a matter of them, you know, being um, subservient. They're very vocal, speak to, and and they provide the type of leadership. But the other thing that I I explain to folks all the time, I says, is that you know what, sisters have no problem expressing themselves in terms of what they need to do and provide leadership. But let's understand something. They want to see us as black men stepping up strongly yes. as it pertains to leadership. And I give the example, I said that, let's suppose uh, you're at home and you're with your wife and you got three children and you sleep upstairs and you hear some noise downstairs, which means maybe somebody was in your house that shouldn't be. Now, are you going to say to the wife, look, honey, you go... You go downstairs to see what's going on while I check on the children? No, no. You go down there as a man. And so I don't care what anybody says. Black women want to see black men out there being men the way they're supposed to and leading, even though we treat them from the perspective of equality when we do this work. So I said, I just I remember because I was, you know, in terms of the organization I had up here that's all volunteer, the Black Community Mason at the, you know, we, we formed the uh, Million Man March Mobilization uh, Committee of Greater Boston and had about 50 buses going on. And, I, you know, I had to go to D.C. early, but the sisters did a send-off for the brothers. And I remember in the, the day of, and I'm, <laughs> the sisters in D.C., they was up in their windows waving towels. Just, just, they were just so thrilled to see black men out there you know, so we we got a lot to do to get to the standard where we need to be. But, you know, just from our perspective, like I said before, uh, when we get in our meetings, sisters are not silent. They speak their minds, and they got just as much respect as everybody else. That's the way we roll with that one because we know how valuable they are in terms of their participation. Well, Siddiqui, when it's the um – 
uh, the next uh, – now, now, listen, I'm quite sure that you have the cadre meetings. Are the cadre meetings uh, separate from the uh, the the larger uh, summits, or how does that Oh, work? absolutely. Go ahead. In fact, uh, what it is is that uh, I had a session with the uh, co-facilitators basically to work out the details so that uh, I said need to do a working shop during the month of June, June, immediately after the summit, you know, just to maintain and continue to build that summit. So we're looking to have um, at least two working shops before the next summit in four months. And what, we, like I said before, uh, we say whatever you do, make sure at least one work project is simplistic uh, in nature. Like, for instance, like I, uh, I think I mentioned before about the whole thing about we establish a bank account and asking folks to give up like, you know, uh, $10 a month, 120 so that everybody feels like, you know what, hey, and from an engagement perspective that, hey, I can I can do that and be a part of what they're doing. With hopefully with that, they might have another skill set that they can, in fact, uh, contribute to the effort we're doing. So we're doing everything we can to make folks feel like they're in a comfort zone and want to do the work. So that's that's where we are. If I may, um, what is, the, you know, for, for those who are listening and, and, and for the continuing communication of making the cadre groups um, grow, what is the process? Um, you know, we, we see the, the, the national, but how do people get connected if they're interested in being a part of the cadre? Okay, I'm glad you brought that because what it is that, you know, for the, for the summits, um, we have a you know a registration process for, for folks who want to participate. But what it is is that we do have a, a, a website uh, www. com or dot org. That's Nubian. It's one word: nubianleadershipcircle.com or dot org. And essentially, because uh, we you know we're all volunteer, we're looking for folks. We're recruiting on a, a regular basis. And uh, particularly for our communications technology uh, cadre, we're looking for folks who have that type of expertise because we want to have a a state-of-the-art website and everything else that goes along with it. So, um, and and we we have a a national number, um, 202-922-6527. So we say to folks, hey, you know, if you're down to do some work, Feel free to be in contact with us because of the fact that uh, we're looking for all different types of expertise to build this whole process. Because, like I said, the ultimate goal, the mission, like for instance, we have here uh, in Boston, Boston, we have uh, the Nubian Leadership Circle Satellite Summit, New England, and it involves Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. And so they're kind of working in conjunction with each other right now, with the goal being that, say, for instance, Rhode Island at some point. We'll be looking for Rhode Island to have uh, their own summit process. And we say, hey, whatever number of cadres you think you can embrace at the time, that's your choice to make. And we want to see uh, Connecticut uh, uh, become independent. Uh, got uh, folks in uh, Durham, North Carolina, who are pulling together uh, some people to meet with them. So the goal is we want to have uh, these satellite summits all across the country. We've got a brother in Haiti. Who's doing this? You know, you hear all these uh, horror stories about Haiti, but there are some positive things that are going on over there that nobody talks about. And the, the brother in this group, that what they're doing over there, it's 
very positive, and he, in fact, is building a satellite summit over there. So it's it's all about the and, and thing we emphasize is that uh, we're talking about establishing a base here. My hope is that my grandson will be training his grandchildren down the line in terms of continuation of the building of the Nubian Leadership Circle because of the fact that, uh, like I said, our goal is to have that, that black nation within a nation. That's that's the ultimate goal, and that we'll be taking care of ourselves. Brother Siddiqui, uh, again, give out the any information where people can get involved. Uh, give out those numbers again and, and the websites and, and anything that you, you want to give. Um, yes, sir. And we'll be looking to, because um, I mentioned this before, but I know you're busy. Um, anytime that uh, any of the cadres, if they want to kind of bounce some things off of uh, uh, a listening audience, this door is always open. You can just call me and uh, put me in touch with whoever you want, and then we can move forward from there. That's just a reminder, because I know that, I, listen, I, I know that your hands is full dealing with what you're doing, but the invitation is always oh. out there for you, brother. Excuse me. I'm going to make your hands bigger because I'm interested in seeing you. The last time you were um, on, you were talking about the work you were doing in Boston and you were just mentioning something else that uh, the Nubian market. Um, So the next time I like to hear the work that organizing, because I think it was a square or something that Uh, y'all. Yes, sir. Well, we're really, we're pleased in terms of the fact that, like I said, I direct the Black Community Information Center in Boston. We're all volunteer, and we led the effort to have, like, Washington Park renamed Malcolm X Park and New Dudley Street, uh, Malcolm X Boulevard. And so we said it makes no sense. Uh, Thomas Dudley in the 1600s, he was the governor that led the effort to legalize slavery in Massachusetts. So we were on an eight- to ten-year campaign to get the name changed. So... Uh, Ballot question, uh, November 5th, 2019, the community voted overwhelmingly in favor of the Nubian Square name. And based on that momentum, the state legislature on their own, before we even campaign, now we, we have the, um, the transportation portal there in the square. It's a business in the state. Uh, they went and voted to change the name to Nubian Station, and we're in the middle of a piece now, right now, uh, for the library uh, to be, we wanted to be named uh, the Nubian Library, and we're getting some resistance. I think the forces of white supremacy are saying there's too much Nubian because we got <laughs> Nubian Gallery. There's going to be a major complex built in the square called uh, Nubian Ascends. So uh, we're really feeling good about that. And, uh, you know, the NAACP convention is coming here, and we're getting ready to have a sit down with them because we're saying, well, wait a minute, they're doing the convention down what's called the Seaport downtown. And we're saying, wait a minute, you're going to do everything downtown? You're not going to set up anything with some of the financial benefits come to our community? No, we're going to talk. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. That's what I'm talking about. Wow. That's wow. what I'm talking about. No, it's good. Thank you. Sorry. It's going, to be a, it's going to be kind of an interesting session on Tuesday when the local chapter uh, is convening this meeting. And I think that's because some of us reached out to some of them saying, well, what's the deal here? You know, you're going to be having our people spend millions of dollars downtown, and they're not going to come to the community. And I said, you know, I said, I've been to conferences. And I said, the bottom line is when we get down with workshops, we want to know where the people at. We want to go there, get something to eat and get some entertainment. So don't be talking about 
we can't do. We said we want to see them come to Nubian Square and beyond in our community. So they know what to expect from us when they do that meeting. That's why they called it. <laughs> uh, you know what? Before before we go, because we got a couple calls that's been sitting here, and they might want to talk to you. Uh, um, I'll bring them on, and then if they want to uh, 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 stay over till the open forum portion of the program we could do that too let's go to 646 646 hey what's going on Richard and Elliot I'll just hold over to the open forum but a, a quick question is you know you just mentioned about the NAACE how is the fight back from them going to look when it becomes clear that they're not going to spend any money in the black community. We're going to give all that money to the white community. We're going to talk about boycotting Florida. I, I, I just don't understand it. Even though they didn't use the word boycott, but that's basically what they're saying is black people don't go to Florida because what the clown is doing. But here it is, you doing your convention and... Boston, and you're not trying to spend any real money with black folks. <laughs> yeah, contradiction, for sure. That's, that's a good point. I, I took notes on that one, bro. <laughs> for oh. sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, well, you know, I, I expect you, Siddiqui, to, when you're in the meeting, to use those notes because... You know, the bottom line is, man, organizations like yourself and the things that you try to do, the NAACP don't want no part of that. They don't want to support you. They don't want to work with you. And they don't want to build because if the truth be told, they don't want to identify as black, unless it's benefiting their bourgeoisie black asses. So, I mean, if you got to bang them, look, man, you got to bang them because the NAACP ain't leading black people nowhere in this country. It's a joke. But Elliot, I'll hold, and, um, you know, Siddiqui, as always, man, you're doing great work, man. Congratulations. I'll hold you over. It's good to hear from you, bro. And, 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 and let me let me just say this: that uh, folks are always talking about the great work that I've done, and 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 but they talk about my humility. And I says it's not a, you know because of the fact that I won't I won't accept titles like legend and things like that for people. And I said, you know what? Like the the, the name change for the square. If all the folks who have worked with me through the years did not work with me, nothing would be happening. So I make it very clear to folks, okay, maybe my name was labeled on there in terms of the quote-unquote leader of the effort, but if it wasn't for these good folks, brothers and sisters who work with me, a lot of what I have accomplished would never have happened. Let's grab a couple more of these if they want to talk to you before you uh, leave, and then we'll just hold them over for the open portion. Let's go to 215. 215. Good evening, Brother Elliot. Good evening, Brother Richard. And good evening, my dear Brother Siddiqui. How are you, sir? Not bad yourself, sir. I'm doing fine. I praise be to Allah. Brother Siddiqui, it's an honor. I'm just like sitting here listening to you and Brother Richard and, and, and Brother Elliot converse, man. I'm just sitting here mesmerized. And, and, and my, 
my good brother Jay, who preceded me, he was he was right on point in many of the things that he said just now. You know, brother Siddiq, I, I'll make these few points and and and, I, and I'll get off first. Brother Siddiq, I like your your passion and your spirit because I can, you know, I'm not one to just throw accolades out to people because I manage my share of phonies in the black community. But you, brother Siddiq, have 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 never met you in person. I could just tell just through this phone that you love our people, brother Siddiq, and you sincere in what you're about and stuff. I can hear the humility and, and stuff. You really care about our people and want to move our people forward. When you got on with Brother Ellen Ricky, you mentioned about One United Bank. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I have an account with them. You know, I wonder, and I'm not trying to, you know, pat myself on the head, but I'm, I'm probably one of the few black folks in this country, Brother Siddiqui, that got an account with all my bankings with black banks. But, and I give, I'm going to give a brief one down what I mean by that. I have a savings account with One United Bank, which you, which you know, Brother Siddiqui, is the largest black bank in this country. I have a checking account. I have a checking account with United Bank of Philadelphia here in Philadelphia. And uh, that's where my Social Security check and my paycheck goes to. And I do my, you know, my, my local banking with them. And I have my credit card, my Visa credit card with Industrial Bank, which is based in Washington, D.C. And everything. Mm-hmm. All my banking and stuff is, is done primarily with black people and everything. I'm happy with it. And so it just, it just warmed my heart when you said about, you know, y'all, you have an account with One United Bank. And, and, be, and before, you get, before you go off with Brother Elliot and, and Brother Richard tonight and stuff, I would hope that you get that information again. So I didn't get to jot it down the first time because I didn't have a good ink pen. But when you get off, so you can jot it down your website, your phone number, whatever, email address, whatever. I definitely want to help out in any way I can because, like you said about commitment and stuff, I'm like you, brother Siddiq. I'm not about titles. I don't care about nobody. I, I, you know, we we we, we got to have Indians. Some sometimes without people, we have too many damn chiefs in the river, not enough Indians, for, for lack of a better word. So I don't need no recognition. All I want to see is our people move forward. I, whatever way I can help out financially, spreading the word with. My, word of mouth, internet, you know, whatever it takes to get the word out for our people and to get the new leadership out there for our people to know it exists. That's what I'm about and everything like that. Because I want to see our people move forward and stuff. And like Brother Jay said, and I agree with Brother Jay 100%, I am no fan of the NAACP. Though I know good people in there, they got, they got good intentions, but I just, that organization as a whole, like Brother Jay said, it, when, when no white Jews start putting pressure on them, they ain't not gonna go nowhere near black. Especially if they think somebody like like yourself that they got a black nationalist uh, uh, inklings or the nation of this style with the Honorable Lewis Minister Lewis Farrakhan. Them Negroes be scared to death. What with them white Jews say boo, them Negroes gonna say how high. So I don't expect too much from them. If you can get any kind of help from them. Fine, but it's not something I would, would bank on because knowing their history, because I see how they've operated over the years. When it, when, when whites put pressure on them, how they just sell our people out. So you know, I'm, not, I'm just not optimistic about them. But as far as what you doing, brother Siddiqui, I'm happy, and, and like I said, I want to be I want to be supportive in any, any way that I that, that I can. That's why I hope you get the contact information. And, and, and brother Siddiqui, one thing, and I and I end with this. Uh, you mentioned about the and Kobe get got in uh, a payment. I don't know if you know any more. But can you expand on that a little bit? And, and, and like, what kind of payment was it from, or, or whatever? You know, what, what it entails. And, and I was just listening to the to, to, to your comments and stuff like that. And again, I, I support you, brothers. I think I, I love what you're doing. And I was just, you know, Elliot put me on mute, and I'll listen to the rest of the show. Thanks for your contribution. I'll, I'll hold you over. Uh, you, thank you, Elliot. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Right. Appreciate the call, brother. And, uh, you know, in terms of the NW, you know, we have an open-door policy uh, in terms of folks who want to join the fight, the bottom line, like the NAACP, from whatever perspective, want to join it, as long as they understand that it's about what we're doing as black people is no problem. And um, 
and and some you know and Cobra, you know, like I said, COINTELPRO has not gone away. My understanding is that in Cobra, uh, a couple of years ago, we got a, a grant. I think it was from the Ford Foundation, one of them for like a million and a half dollars. And of course, what that did was cause friction and division, which was no surprise. So you know, we have we have to rise above that. And and brother, I appreciate your call. Uh, we need folks like you to come on board to work with us. You can go to our website, www. Was it? I'm a novice now. www. <laughs> Nubian Leadership Circle. That's one word. Nubian Leadership Circle. dot com or uh, dot uh, dot org. And our national number. Feel free. Uh, is two zero two nine two two six five two seven. That's two zero two. Nine two two six five two seven. So feel free to reach out. We open. Let me grab a couple more before you go. Uh, leave us two six seven two six seven. Hey, good evening, Elliot. I want to say good evening, Richard, and uh, good evening, Brother Siddiqui. Um, how you doing tonight, my man? How are you, sir? All right. Uh, just wanted to call Brother Siddiqui, and uh, I went to your website, um, NubianLeadershipCircle dot org. And I could not find anywhere how to donate to the organization. I mean, I looked all over your website, couldn't find anywhere to donate. Also, I wanted to inform Elliot and Richard, when I went to donate to Time for an Awakening, I was unable to do it because something just kept spinning around and said unable to take donations this time or unable to reach PayPal. So I just wanted to inform uh both parties of that, but I appreciate the work you're doing, man. Uh, I get the newsletters every, uh, every Saturday. And, uh, and the one thing I do realize with all these splinter grassroots groups and the petty, petty nonsense that goes on between some of the egos, it's a time to put all that aside and try to benefit, you know, try to unite. And I see you doing that since I've been knowing you and following you. I've seen you do that. So your action speaks louder than words, my brother. And I just wanted to let you know that. But if there is another way to donate to the organization, you said $10 a month, uh, whatever, you know, let us know that, make it clear because a lot of us are up there in age and we're not, you know, technology, it just, you know, I don't know. (laughs) So, you know, if you can make that clear for the listening audience, man, uh, I appreciate that. And, uh, I'll, uh, continue to listen. All right. Yes, sir. Well, you know, just, uh, stay tuned. Number one, uh, our website is being revamped, but the, the biggest piece is that the whole piece around the, uh, bank piece and the donation was announced today during the summit. So in the very near future, uh, you'll be able to go to the website itself uh, to make that donation. And 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 what's really important is that that's not something that's my responsibility because the way we're setting up infrastructure-wise is that the different cadres that they have their own specific responsibilities, but of course they can change lanes to be able to go to communicate with another cadre but to stay in their lane and focus on what they're supposed to do. So what it is is that our economic development cadre, which is headed up by uh, Dr. Ray Winbush from Oregon State and his brother Adrian, 
uh, from down in Florida. Uh, it's their mandate now to pull their people together to see to it that uh, now that they have the information regards to, and that was, let me just say it, it took a lot to get that account open. Now that we have the account, they'll be moving forward, and in the near future, anyone who wants to make a donation will have that ability. I appreciate it, my brother. And just please let me know in the newsletters, and I'll do my best to contribute. So, yes, sir. Like I said, I'll continue to listen. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for your contribution. Yes, yeah, I, listen, Richard, I better put my uh, hard hat on and look at the, <laughs> look at the website because to find out what's going on there. That, uh, okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that information, brother. Uh, let's let's grab one more and, and see if they want to say something to you, brother Sticky, before you go. 215, 215? Uh, that, that call dropped. Uh, you called back, brother. Um, brother Sticky? Yes, sir. Listen, thanks for your work. Uh, I, I want to get some of the folks on, especially after you... Uh, I'm just curious to, to what happens when you have that meeting with the NAACP or some of their leadership in reference to uh, them funneling some of the dollars to the black community. I, I just want I, I'm curious to find out uh, what happens from that. Yeah, well, well, it's interesting because of the fact that uh, there's a brother. His name is Michael Curry, and he uh, he's he heads up. Uh, he's the CEO for collaborative of health centers here in Boston now, but he's also part of the national leadership for the NAACP. And so uh, Michael, uh, he was a member of my youth committee for the Man Man March. So whenever he sees me, he kind of looks down the floor first, <laughs> then comes over because he knows I got something to say to him. You know what I'm saying? So he knows I'm going to be talking to him on Tuesday night when we had that meeting with the NAACP. Because so, he and uh, his colleagues, who I've reached out to, they have not gotten back to me directly. But some folks are saying, uh, Sadiki, did you see that they're doing a meeting for the community on Tuesday to talk about the uh, about the uh, pieces coming in July, the convention? I said, yeah, I know. So I'm going to be there, too. You know what I'm saying? So interesting dynamic. But, uh, you know, like there's no way in the world we can just sit aside and you're going to have thousands of black people coming here to the city. And not coming into the community and spending some of that, you know, not just only about spending the money, but, you know, just coming here and fraternizing with with their people. Talking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Brother Ziggy, thanks for your work, and I'll talk to you soon. And let me just say this in close. I appreciate the opportunity, and, and I don't have to tell folks to reach out to you to, you said, to, to let folks know they can call you? Yes. Uh, you can I've get- already done that. I'll talk to you soon, sir. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll transition to open forum. You can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832, 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Time 
time for an awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. The Digital Plantation, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family to join your interconnected commit to you black communities escape the digital plantation now abibitumi.com abibitumi.tv abibitumitv.com abibitumi.store we are here for you escape the digital plantation a new era a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality, and uh, they are always looking for an excuse Uh, to go, but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his 
people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us? Or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Ralph Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Mary Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, Nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. For an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 827 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. I want to thank our guest that was spent some time with us this evening, activist and organizer and convener of the Nubian Leadership Circle, Brother Siddiqui Kamban was with us. Uh, again, you can get involved in the uh, and the Nubian Leadership Circle, and you don't have to be in the Boston or D.C. area. Just go to the website, uh, NubianLeadershipCircle.org or .com, and it, the, the national number is 202-922-6527. That's 202-922-6527. Uh, Richard. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I, I just want to... Uh, Throw out some things here in, in, in the, the open forum portion of the program. Uh, you know what? Before I do that, uh, let me read this uh, press release from December 12th movement. Uh, Sister Colette Pan, who was, had been on our programs uh, before, uh, sent me this uh, uh, press release. Uh, 
The header says it's past time for the New York State reparations bill. New York State is behind the rest of the country in addressing the issue of reparations for black people. The New York State legislature has until June 8th to vote on reparations legislation being put forward by the New York State Senator Jabari Brisport and New York State Assembly member Michelle Salon. On Monday, June 5th at 4 p.m. at the African Burial Ground at Duane Street, downtown Manhattan, the December 12th movement is calling a press conference to highlight the urgency of passing this legislation. The proposed legislation is unique in the manner, uh, the major administrative role it provides for the community organizations which have demonstrated a historical commitment to the demand for reparations. Representatives from the December 12th movement uh, local officials, including council member Charles Barron, who then, as a assembly member, originated originally submitted the bill, and the community organizations from around the city are expected to attend. Uh, uh, members of Encobra and and three legislative uh, community, uh, excuse me, and three designated community organizations will also be there. So that's tomorrow for, for residents that's in New York City. Tomorrow, June 5th at 4 p.m. at 4 p.m. at the African Burial Ground. That's on Duane Street in downtown Manhattan. Calling the press conference to get this bill passed. Uh, the legislation that was originally submitted by then Assemblyman Charles Barron and, and, uh, and Brother Barron will also be there. We're going to reach out to uh, uh, Assemblyman Barron and get him on a program, hopefully within the next a couple of Sundays, next couple of weeks to kind of talk about this and a lot of other topics, which will be interesting for our listening audience, Richard. Mm, Yeah, necessary. Yeah, Richard, um, two things that I want to throw out here. Um, One, uh, and it kind of, listen, it's no surprise to me or you or anybody that listens to Time for an Awakening about what you're getting ready to hear. But you heard Dr. King's voice in the beginning of that collage talking about people reacting to Jim Clark and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, the other bigot forgot it's his name escapes me and not being sincere about, uh, moving towards what he considered equality for black people in this country, uh, basically citizenship. Cause he said that before that black folks weren't citizens and we needed to be free. Right. Now, listen to this uh, thing here that uh, one of our listeners, Brother Otis, sent me. It's a new book that's being released. I think it's this month or it's already released. Um, And it don't it's not surprising what you what you're getting ready to hear. But uh, it's always uh, good to. to keep a scorecard on these people, because I, I think a lot of our people kind of drop the books, drop their lessons. They don't, they don't keep a scorecard in reference to, uh, uh, people that, that brought us here in captivity and are still here with us. Their descendants are here. Their mentality really hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed is the date on the calendars that we look at. But I just want to, uh, to play this for the listening audience. Let me pull this up. Here it is. 
We spend the rest of the hour with the author of the first major biography of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in decades. Jonathan Igg's King, A Life, was published this month and draws on unredacted FBI files as well as the files of the personal aid to President Lyndon Johnson that shows how he and others partnered with the FBI's surveillance of King and efforts to destroy him, led by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote in a New York Times opinion essay about the book that the documents reveal how, quote, Johnson was more of an antagonist to King and a conspirator with Hoover than he has been portrayed. By personalizing the FBI's assault on King, Americans cling to a view of history that isolates a few bad actors who oppose the civil rights movement, including Hoover, Governor George Wallace of Alabama, and the Birmingham lawman Bull Connor. They thus fail to acknowledge the institutionalized well organized resistance to change in our society. That's Jonathan Eig, author of King, A Life, for which he also interviewed more than 200 people, including many who knew King closely, like the singer, actor, and activist, the late, great Harry Belafonte. The book has also drawn attention for its revelation that King was less critical of Malcolm X than previously thought. Ig found the original transcript of an interview King did with Alex Haley, who's the author who collaborated with Malcolm X on his autobiography. The transcript shows how Haley misquoted and even made up part of King's response. In fact, King never said Malcolm has done himself or our people a great disservice. And King's comment about fiery, demagogic oratory was not related to Malcolm X. To talk about all of this, we're joined in Chicago by Jonathan Eig. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Jonathan. This is an epic work. Congratulations on years of research and writing. Why don't we begin where I left off on this expose? around what Martin Luther King really thought of Malcolm X. Talk about the significance of how Alex Haley uh, shaped the narrative for so many decades and who Haley was. Alex Haley was one of the best-known African-American journalists of his era. He wrote for a lot of mainstream white publications like Reader's Digest and Playboy. And the Playboy interview that he did with Martin Luther King was the longest interview, the longest published interview that, that King ever gave. So it had significant impact. It reached a lot of white readers who were not otherwise going to be exposed to such a long interview with King. And um, it's because of the, the comments that King made or uh, supposedly made about Malcolm X, uh, it's, it's been handed down for decades, for generations, that this is what King actually thought about Malcolm X. And it was, as you pointed out in the introduction, largely fabricated. And talk about how you found this out and what you understand King really thought about Malcolm X. They actually only met in person once, right, uh, in Washington, D.C., although Malcolm X did go to Selma and talk about what he said to, Mal- to Martin Luther King's wife, Coretta Scott King. 
Yes, the men only met once, and um, and Malcolm did go. He was he was speaking in Tuskegee, and some students told him that King was was in Selma. They could drive there and be there, um, you know, within hours. So uh, Malcolm X got in the car, drove to Selma, did not get to meet King because he was in jail, but he did sit next to Coretta Scott King at a church rally and said to Coretta, um, "Let your husband know that I'm here, that I that I support him, and and that maybe it's helpful to him in a way if everybody knows that I'm." The alternative, perhaps they'll be more willing to listen to Dr. King. And um, that's the truth. The truth of their relationship, as James Baldwin wrote, is that by the time of their deaths, they were pretty much indistinguishable in their philosophies. Uh, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but they were definitely moving toward each other. And this quote um, in Playboy really um, dis- really uh, did a disservice. It really misrepresented their relationship. Uh, one of the things that I do in any um, time I find a really good interview with with the subject of a book that I'm working on is I'll go to the archives and try to find the original tapes or the original transcript of that interview to see what was left out. And that's really all I was doing uh, when I went looking for the Alex Haley transcript of his interview with Martin Luther King. I wanted to see what got left out because, you know, you can never really publish the full interview. You have to choose the best parts. But as I was reading through the transcript, I was shocked to discover that um, whole parts of it were, were moved around so that Answers to questions were were changed in their meaning, and some um, sections were completely fabricated. And King never said that um, that he thought that he thought Malcolm's um, fiery oratory was doing a disservice to the black community. And uh, he's suggesting in this interview, the part that wasn't published, that he's open-minded to learning more and to talking more to Malcolm. That's one of the great things about King. He was always interested in in listening to the people who disagreed with him. Richard. So the question. Richard. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, like I mentioned prior to playing that, and I want to thank uh, Brother Otis for uh, sending that to me, um, or to both of us. You know, it's not surprising what we just heard. But Mm -hmm. I I think what uh, we need to take into account, because they'll always try to protect their brethren. If you remember what the woman said in the beginning, uh, it, 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 it downplays the fact of the institutionalized, well orchestrated, uh, uh, thing to basically eliminate King, you know, institutionalized, well orchestrated. I mean, what they admitted is that Johnson was very much or more involved than Hoover himself. Mm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it, what I'm trying to get my thought together on this, Elliot, in that moment, you know, the, you know, that was a critical moment. And what, what it brings up is just how much uh, the, the intelligence and the security community was trying to make, you know, to put black folks in, in check, King and, and Malcolm. And, you know, and how much... Black folks were being used because it wasn't. It wasn't it also a photographer that was uh, was he um, um, photographing King who also worked for the. Well, he, he not only he was not only photographing King and a close friend and associate. He was photographing a lot of different civil uh, uh, civil rights meetings, uh, people involved, and he was working for the FBI. Yeah, right. And the thing and so is, the, the thing yeah. that this guy uncovered, Richard, is uh, and see that. <clears throat> 
a lot of times when we present stuff on the program, I'll go back or you'll go back and pull some of those original writings and read them to the audience on the air. Like that, that proclamation mentioned about Juneteenth. Right. When black folks running around talking about, oh, that's when our people understood that they were free. But when you go back and read what they, they stated to our ancestors back then, it don't say anything about us being free. It right. says that the relationship changes from master and slave to uh, a worker and what you remember what it said, Richard? I, I'll pull it. Worker, worker, and employer. An employer. So that that mm-hmm. that doesn't say you're free. So that's not a, that's not what it stated. Well, this guy said he goes back and looks at the transcript and seeing where things that's attributed to King, uh, stated uh, uh, supposedly by Malcolm, uh, uh, things attributed to Malcolm supposedly stated by King, that Alex Haley supposedly wrote wasn't there at all mm-hmm. and some of the stuff made up now Alex Haley is gone but if he was here he should be made to explain this to black people and see that's what we don't do to some of these so called leaders this shenanigans that they do behind the scenes and some of it comes out where they're working with people who have traditionally been against black folks and d- d- nothing to say black media don't hold them. And I'm talking about popular black media. They don't hold them responsible or accountable for their actions. They don't say anything to them. Mm. That's from Obama on down all of the, and, the, and even the current crop, these people, they, 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 this type of behavior uh, from people that's supposed to represent you. A lot of these people go to these polls and pull these levers for people that they think is going to help them. And this is the type of stuff they get. Now, if you, on that same vein, Richard, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. The Urban League issued their report on state of black Chicago. You know, it's on the heels of the state of black America. Mm-hmm. And let me just read a couple of things here because I'm not going to read the whole thing. It talked about Chicago being the third largest city in the country and approximately 2.7 million people. Now it says the pop the population of Chicago is evenly divided across racial lines. Uh, 33% white, 29% Latino and 29% black. That's almost even Richard. You still with me? I didn't lose you, though. No, okay. yeah, right. Uh, but here's what's not even. Uh, the 28% of households, of black households, live in poverty in Chicago. 11% of white households and 17% of Latino households. That's not even, Richard. Mm-hmm. The population is almost even. I'm talking about the, the, the percentage of population. Right. But 28%, and it says it's higher in certain urban areas among the black population. But overall, it's a 28% poverty rate in Chicago for blacks. Nowhere near that for whites or Latinos. The median income for whites in Chicago is 82000 
$294. The median income for black families is, uh, what does it say here? $35,963. The unemployment rate for blacks in Chicago is over 16%. On average, is sixteen percent. So it's talking about what's going on across the board, but then focuses in on specific cities. Now that right. kind of coincides with what we read about New York City about three weeks ago mm-hmm. about the unemployment rate for blacks in New York is twelve point two percent, but for whites. It's 1.3%. In Philadelphia, now they didn't, they do, they, they haven't done a report this year so far. But the last report they did, black unemployment, and this is on average, keep in mind it is greater in certain communi- black communities in Philadelphia, but the average uh, unemployment is 14.6%, higher than New York, and a little bit lower in Chica- than Chicago's. But a huge double-digit unemployment. And then you turn around and see violence off the hook in a lot of these cities. Chicago, the the unemployment rate, 16.7%, according to the Urban League's figures. Philadelphia, 14.6%. New York, 12%. Black unemployment. In major cities in this country. What is that saying about blacks feeling as though they're citizens? Mm. Instead of a colonized population. Now, here we go in Philadelphia. I'm going to play this clip. Here we go in Philadelphia. Keep repeating the same thing. The pom-pom waving. We haven't got enough of that waving pom-pom since 2008. Here we go waving pom-poms again because the Democratic nominee and probably be the mayor of Philadelphia will be a black woman. But she has a track record. If you're keeping a scorecard in Philadelphia residents, she has a track record. Now, I want to play this clip that you sent me, Richard. She was asked a question on a program two days ago. You'll hear the question that she's asked, and you'll hear her answer. And I'm I'm going to be waiting for black media in this town to hold her accountable for her answers, although she has said this uh, a couple of occasions before. But listen to the question this white uh, journalist asked her, and listen to her answer. Here it is. Let me pull it up. And I always get confused to call you council person or former council person because you were a council person for so long, and that was how I addressed you. But thank you for you know taking the time out to talk to us, Larry. Do you have any questions? Yeah, just one, uh, one last thing. So let's fast forward to uh, January twenty twenty four. It's you've been inaugurated. You're in office. What are the first things you're going to do in office to help alleviate poverty? 
Uh, the first thing that we're going to do is implement my neighborhood safety and community policing plan proactively in neighborhoods across the city uh, so we can have law enforcement who, one, they understand that there will be zero tolerance for any misuse and or abuse of authority by the men and women who are sworn to protect and serve our communities. They will be on the beat, riding bikes, engaged in full-fledged community policing, uh, in neighborhoods across the city, building relationships, um, uh, not not as warriors, but as guardians uh, in our community, strengthening police and community um, relations. And uh, we will be, again, employing the use of federal and uh, state resources to help us address the gun violence crisis, along with the opioid crisis and the open air drug markets that we see in our uh in our city. We are going to be able to think more and focus more on innovative ways that we can grow uh, the tax base, right? We want people coming here, visiting here, tourism, arts, and culture. We want people to be choosing Philadelphia and not viewing us as a pass-through. So that's what we'll be doing in the first uh, 100 days. Calling for a state of an emergency alone does absolutely nothing to discourage people who are committing violent crime in the city of Philadelphia. But when a Parker administration, um, you know, if it's the vote, if it's the voters will in the city of Philadelphia, when a Parker administration is sworn in, the people in this city and the people who are committing violent crime in this city, they will know that there will be zero tolerance for it. And we will have men and women within our police department knowing that when they do their jobs the right way, they have a mayor that is willing to stand up to have their back because they're protecting and serving our city and the people in it to the best of their ability. And when they do that right, we're going to make sure that we have their back. All right, Councilmember Charles Parker, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Larry, and thank you, Denise. Have a good one. If that ain't about, if that ain't about uh, creating a police state, I don't know what is. Well, Richard, wait, wait a minute. Go ahead. Finish your thought. <laughs> No, I say that's supposed to deal with poverty. That, I, that's what I'm. Listen, that white the, the the white reporter, the black the journalist turned it over to the white uh, journalist. He asked, on, uh, "Let's fast forward to twenty twenty four January. What are you going to do your first hundred day or first day in office to address poverty?" That's what he said, mm-hmm. and her answer was to deploy the police in all of these areas. And the federal, and the federal. She did say bring in the feds. Yeah, well, I want, I want especially the Philadelphia audience to hear this. So when you say stuff about her, I don't wouldn't care if she was a woman, a black man, a black woman, or a monkey. I don't give a damn. If you get up there and say you're going to unleash cops on black people and you're going to have their back. It's a problem, and it should be an alarm for black people in this city. Stop with the pom-pom waving. This stuff ain't getting us nowhere. We're going to have to deal with these issues. Come up with leadership from the community that that don't bow to these special interests and take money from these, whether it's religious groups, Jews, or take money from other Anglos. The majority of Philadelphia is still black. 
We can come up with people that that have leadership in mind to, to be fair in our communities. This is a joke. And then when you mention something about her, oh, oh you're a hater. You hate women. You, you, ooh, ooh, why are you talking about a sister like that? See, but that's people that's, when I say ignorant, that don't know what they're talking about, that have not kept a scorecard, that don't know the issues. All they see is a woman that have made commercials on TV talking about I'm running for mayor, and they run out and pull a lever. They're unaware of a lot of these things. This is, this is an interview that you heard. You won't hear it played on local black talk stations. You won't hear it. That guy asked her, what are you going to do to address poverty? Because it's off the hook in these communities, which is fueling a lot of this junk. And she said she's going to unleash the police. You know, Elliot, uh, the thing the thing is, though, I mean, I, as we have um, brought up before, you remember after they had the African summit, the African representatives came here, and the New York mayor um, um, made, you know, said how much, you know, uh, how much they're in power now, and you know, and they needed to look at them, you know, um, in relationship, and then you you they got. I think it was the mayor from Chicago, the mayor from uh, black, you know, mayor from L.A. Black. Yeah, and Houston, it was a, Houston in New York City, I think. Uh, all of them said the <clears throat> policy initiative that they have to work on is safety. She just said safety, <laughs> which means all of them are, and all of them said in order to deal with safety, they have to deal with the dealing with the police. Now it's just interesting and ironic that what how many years ago um the police was the number one thing you had to you know be concerned about. Right? But here now you have black representatives who are saying in in cities, all the you you gave the statistics about New York. You gave the statistics about Chicago. All of these cities where black people are doing bad and you have black representation and the question is asked, well, what are you going to do about it? What are they going to do? They're going to give you police. Unleash the cops. Yep. Now, if a, if a white mayor said that, how would it be translated? When it was said during the, what's that, the 80s and 90s? About when when the whole stop and frisk and and what is it Bloomberg? What 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 was it said? Oh, uh, black people, the the elderly are so afraid to go in their community because, as she said, open air drugs, opium. At that point, it was crack. I'm, what I'm trying to say, Elliot, is it just seems the same policy initiative. But when you ask the question, how are you going to deal with poverty? And you got the people like the Urban League saying it is a serious challenge with the black community. And all the black representatives can come up with, even as just talking piece, is we're going to deal with the police. 
And in Philadelphia, they don't have enough people yet to fill the offices of the police. So where are they going to get them from? To ride the bikes. <laughs> They'll bring them in from, from suburban areas. That's where they get them now. <laughs> wow. Uh, Richard, one other thing, and then I'll go to the phones. Uh, here we go with the national. And see, you know, listen, we, we've had uh, black independent uh, 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 groups there that's talking about forming, and, and not talking about forming, that have formed black independent parties and saying that they need to change their focus from national to local offices and especially proportion to population. You've had political analysts on Roger house. You've had uh, James Lance Taylor on here saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So because we see what's been happening nationally, we've been playing this, this same old dog and pony show and getting the same results. Now, let, let me just read a couple paragraphs from this article that was released three days ago, MSNBC. Uh, and listen to what it says about you, because they specifically make a remark about you and what, you go, what you're going to do. And when I see you, I'm talking about our people, us. Mm-hmm. It says, the header says, why Joe Biden's struggle with black voters still isn't good news for Donald Trump. It says, the black vote is the soil that every Democrat needs for candidacy to blossom into a presidency. Joe Biden won with 92% of the black vote in 2020. And he needs a similar large share of that vote if he is to win re-election next year. But a new poll suggests that so far, He hasn't properly replenished the soil. In a Washington Post poll of more than 1,200 black uh, potential voters, almost half say Biden's policies have made no difference to black people's lives. There's a good chance that the widespread belief among black people that Biden has made no difference in black people's lives will make little or no difference on how black people will vote. Obviously, that's not the feedback that the president wishes uh, he were getting less than a year and a half before Election Day 2024. But there's a good chance that widespread belief among black people that Biden has made no difference in black people's lives will make little or no difference in how black people will vote. Because the same poll finds that even a greater share of black adults would be angry if Donald Trump were planted back in the White House. The, uh, there is a question. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I've lost my space. Here we go. The poll sums up the frustration that is uh, near constant for black Americans. While really enthusiastic about the black Democrat, about Democrats and what they do, they're often brought to the brink of rage by the personalities, policies, and plans of Republicans. But for that reason, that a poll uh, that has some bad news for Biden doesn't necessarily translate into good news for Trump. 
there is a question of those black adults who were asked, do you think President Biden's policies have helped or hurt black people? Or you personally have Biden's policies made a difference? Only 34% of black voters said that Biden's policies has helped black people. 14% said that they have hurt black people. And 49% says that policies has made no difference one way or the other as an impact of Biden's policies on individual black person on an individual black person answering the question 28% says that they have helped them 11% says that they has hurt them and 58% says that it made no difference uh, the Washington Post poll explains that while the president continues to receive relatively high marks from black voters, he has not yet convinced most of them that his policies has improved their lives. That's why the 92% of black people who voted for Biden in 2020 uh, uh, might make a different choice moving forward. Now, now, Richard, hold it. This MSNBC uh, opinion says mm-hmm. that no matter if you were treated bad by Biden, and I'm just using layman's terms, uh, you're not going to vote for Trump, so you'll be voting for Biden. That's basically what he's saying. He just said it here, that it don't matter how black people felt, and they frustrated by this, they're still going to vote for Biden. Mm. Now, according to the poll that they had last week, 68% of black voters said that they would vote for Biden in the next election. Keep in mind, Richard, in order for any Democrat to win, he needs at least 90% of black vote. I think Obama ran twice and he had 94 and 96% respectively, if I'm not mistaken. Hillary Clinton had 80, 80 something percent and she lost. You remember? Yep. Now, Biden had 92%, and black people basically put him into that White House. And according to the, and it, it don't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. Any white candidate that's running for president needs 92% of their base, which is black people, to vote for them. It leads, needs at least 90%. And right now, he stands at 68%. So what is that going to do? He's going to send all of the operatives all of them all around to make statements, to go rally voters, to vote for Democrats and for Joe Biden and tell them anything that he's done a lot for black people. It's a, it's a, uh, article here about Abrams, Stacey Abrams, Richard, uh, now, you know, when she lost down there in Georgia, they sent her to Nigeria as a representative of the United States to monitor elections. Now, you know that Brother Patrick and the Black Liberation Movement down in Mississippi have been talking for well over a year now that Ground Zero is in Mississippi. You remember a lot of the conversation he'd been having, Richard? Right, right. 
that it's, it's, it's fertile ground, all our people being there, and we need to get involved if we want to change some things and develop some candidates to take control of areas in Mississippi. Brother Patrick talked about different towns down there. It's almost predominantly black where they can take control of the politics in those areas. Now, let me read to you something here that was on MSNBC earlier in the week. On Tuesday, in fact. Um, On Tuesday's morning MSNBC appearance, uh, Stacey Abrams quickly identified Mississippi as an exciting... Wait a minute, hold it. I'm losing my place here. On the Tuesday morning show, uh, uh, morning NBC, MSNBC appearance, uh, Stacey Abrams was asked which southern state is the ripest uh, for a transformation to help accomplish what happened in Georgia. Abrams quickly identified Mississippi, saying Mississippi is ripe for a, a, a liberal takeover. So you hear her comments, Richard. Right. All of a sudden, she's identified Mississippi. You've heard Brother Patrick and others that's down there talk about what we need to do in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. You heard Charles Cobb, who was a veteran of organizing in those areas, talk about what needs to be done down there and talk about the challenge that young black people is going to face and who they're going to face it from. Now, right. From what Charles Cobb said, you're going to face it from people just like Stacey Abrams. From what Charles Cobb said, I didn't say it. He said it, Richard. Mm -hmm. I just want to throw a couple of those things out there because they they, uh, and and also, Richard, and we're going to get John Boyd uh, uh, try to get him on uh, back on the program. Because he sent that uh, uh, thing to both of us about uh, that he didn't intend to support Biden in this election uh, because of uh, and you see what has happened. The court because uh, um, Ben Crump filed a suit against the uh, the federal government for uh, double crossing black people in that American Rescue Plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, the money that was allocated by the government for debt relief for African-American farmers. And they was double cross because in the build back better, they took the money out because it was a, it was a thorn in the side of white farmers and the banks also said they wasn't interested in giving black people no debt relief. Let me just read this uh, header here. Judge rejects debt relief lawsuit filed by black farmers. Of black farmers who were promised USDA debt relief didn't have a valid contract with the government, precluding a lawsuit over the program's termination, according to a federal judge. In uh, 2021, Congress authorized the USDA to forgive <clears throat> over $4 billion in loans to black farmers under the American Rescue Plan. 
the program provoked lawsuits from white farmers across the country, including an Oregon couple who claimed to go. Well, okay. Several preliminary injunctions halted the money from being distributed. But before the litigation could be fully resolved, Congress scrapped the program last year in the Inflation Reduction Act. And that's what led to uh, John Boyd and Ben Crump putting in the lawsuit against the federal government for basically backing down on their word. And this federal judge says that uh, in his answer, saying that uh, black farmers, although promised, excuse me, black farmers, although promised debt relief, didn't have a valid contract with the government precluding a lawsuit over the program's termination, according to the federal judge. So, Richard, you didn't have a valid contract. Even though the, 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 he was a nominee at the time and became president, said that you would get it. Black Prominent blacks who was in office at the time and is still in office, like Cory Booker and Warnock, who's a pastor, said that you would get it. And you're not getting it according to the federal government and according to the judge that upheld what happened. No. <laughs> Richard, you're a citizen. Richard, you're a citizen, Richard. You, you know, and you're all not, this. You're not a colonized <laughs> people. It, it reinforces why, I mean, when we're dealing with what you laid out, in relationship to the state, I mean, and it, and it wasn't you saying it, right? I mean, from the the the, the what's that? The propaganda and with King, the the, the um, instituting um, police containment um, by with a black mayor um, and and targeting, you know, the uh, targeting of the you know Mississippi, you know, as. Really, to get in front of, and they got a good they, they, this that 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 class was that they call it the misleadership head class has a good uh, uh, out of the Democratic Party or out of all the parties they have a good thing of running in front of when you acknowledge this is where our stronghold is to get there and, and block block it right and then going um, to even uh, the court you know v- um, voting against. The black farmers. It brings us back when you to the point of being a colonized people. To the point of of what somebody like Harry Hayward said in 1945. And I just want to before we go to the phones, I just want to 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 bring this point of what we're supposed to be doing. And and it goes to the guest we had earlier when he says. The recognition of the principle of self-determination implies an uncompromising fight for the conditions for its realization. That means the fight for equality in all fields against all forms of national or racial oppression. In short, complete democracy in the country. The exercise of the right of self-determination is the crowning point of this struggle and symbolizes the equality uh, of the given nation, talking about because 
Harry Hayward is one who was proposing that we operate as a nation within a nation. This comes out of National Liberation, uh, um, a book that he published in 1948. 1948. And he um, came back in 1978 and and wrote um, uh, uh, something else and cut and summarizing you know, in the epilogue of that, the black bush, but how the condition dealing with what was going on in the seventies of putting in black capitalists um, of the diversion of Johnson, but here saying self-determination is therefore merely the logical expression of the struggle against national oppression in every form it is irrefutable demand of consistent democracy in the sphere of the national problem. Do we have a national problem based off of the, what you what you laid out? It seems to me, yes. Yeah. I'll say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is 1948. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, listen. Uh the, the Urban League's mantra this year is uh, our democracy is under attack. Isn't that what is Richard? Yeah, that's what it said. Black folks, uh, our democracy. Well, Malcolm coined it. Malcolm hit it right on the head over 50 years ago when he said, uh, in this country, democracy to black people is hypocrisy. Mm. And I just read several incidents of the same hypocrisy being perpetrated over and over again on black people. Whether it was an 1800 reconstruction when they took black folks land, or took their money when the bank failed, the, the, the Freedmen's Bank, and then just left them with nothing. They're doing the same thing now. You heard one of the farmers, and well, I ain't going to repeat what he said because he, I know he said it out of anger. But the, <laughs> you remember what one of the farmers said on this program, this very program, about what he was tempted to do. You remember what he said, Richard? Yeah. Let's go. And that frustration is there. I just wanted to say that. Yeah. I mean, listen, when you got, see, our people ain't realizing when these, these, white folks along with some of their black lackeys rule on these things. They don't realize you taking somebody's land that their father, their grandfather left for them. They want to leave it for their children. All these other white farmers, when you're producing food in the country, that's why they got a budget for farm. They got a farm budget because they know that that's the lifeblood of any country. And when you're producing food, they don't know what'll happen. A drought might happen. That'll wipe out your crop. So then you can go to the USDA and get money to cover your losses. That's in the national budget, Richard. That's unlike any other business. I'm in a business now. If my business failed, I failed. And yeah, I better go get a job or do something else. Farming is different. It's in the national budget to maintain farmers, to keep them afloat. We didn't get money to cover their losses, also to plant new crops because the nation needs food. All less a a regular circumstance, except when it comes to you as a farmer. You Mm. don't get nothing. You get fake seed when it comes to you going to buy food or seed to plant. You get fake seed by the second largest producer of seed in this country. 
And then you got to file a lawsuit and they keep you dancing around in court. They'll try to wait you out. You try to apply for loans, just like these average farmers get. And you heard John Boyd himself, along with other farmers, talk about when they go to the, the um, I forgot what you call them, Richard. It's not the exchange office, the, not the essay. When you go to get those loans and the other yeah. farmers is there, what happens with these white farmers and, and what happens to them? I thought we was all supposed to be citizens. Some black folks said, said that we're citizens. You had Kamala Harris and Tim Scott, both on the side of the aisle, said that this country is not a racist country. Yeah, well, let's go to the phones. Let's go to 215. 215? 215? Yes, Brother Richard, Brother Elliot? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, good evening to the, uh, both of you brothers. Yes, I, you know, I, I joined, uh, I turned you on at the sort of the, sort of the tail end of your, of your guest that you had on. I heard two of my good brothers on, uh, um, German, uh, Germantown Joe and, and Brother Jay, uh, on as I joined y'all conversation. And, um, you just, you just, uh, brought up, uh, Kamala Harris and Tim Scott. Um, it's funny you should mention that because when Tim Scott said that this, country is not a racist nation uh black people jumped all over him. uh you know they, they attacked him how could he say something like that but when Kamala Harris when I think it was she said this on the on the CBS morning news the next morning when when I pointed out to somebody uh on a black talk station that she said the same thing oh no no she didn't no no she didn't say that <laughs> but so so Kamala Harris can say that but Tim Scott can't you know that this country is not a, a, a racist nation. Both both of them said it within like twelve hours of each other. Mm-hmm. But Tim Scott got attacked for it, and she didn't by black people. <laughs> and that that article that you read from uh, MSC, MSNBC article that you read from about you know, the black vote. Basically, what they're saying to uh, black people is this: uh, No matter how y'all feel, Negro, y'all y'all ain't got nowhere else to go. So y'all going to vote for us anyway. That's that's basically what this that's basically yes. what they're saying to black folk. Yes. Y'all ain't got nowhere else to go. So we we all going to go. Well, you know, myself and German Challenge Joe, we, we we talk a lot. And one of the things that we were talking about uh, a few days ago is that uh and, and I'm going to bring this back to what you said about the palm waving going on here in Philadelphia. Is that uh, uh we black men in particular that we between now and no, November of 24, black men have to make a statement uh, to the Democratic Party. Uh, you look at the way they're going at the Ice Cube. Uh, Ice Cube has talked about the way how you know that we've been treated by Democrats over the past 50 years, and they've gone after him full force, lying on him, saying that he told black people to go and vote for Donald Trump, which which he never said. All he talked about was how Democrats have taken the black vote for granted that for how we've supported them over the past 50, 60 years, we've gotten little or nothing for our vote. That's all he said. And he's being attacked by the likes of people like Roland Martin and a lot of the other uh, mainstream uh, black uh, journalists who just happen to be uh, black. That's what I call them. They're, they're not black journalists. They're journalists who just happen to be black. That's what people like Roland Martin and Joy Reid 
and, and Jonathan Capehart and Don Lemon are. They're journalists who just happen to be black. They're not black journalists. But we, as black men in particular, and some sisters too, but black men in particular, you are starting to see amongst uh, brothers, uh, we're, we're becoming fed up with uh, the Democratic Party. We're becoming fed up with them. And I think that uh, if we can get the percentage of uh, black men voting for the Democratic Party, talk about for the presidential office, down to 80% or less, that would severely damage uh, the Democrats in, uh, in 24. But we, we, have to, we have to do something. Uh, we can't keep allowing, I mean, any, any self-respecting black man who can vote for Joe Biden after he, what he said in 2020, uh, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. I mean, how could anybody vote for a man who would say something like that out of his mouth? And then, and then, uh, and the the the, uh, the teleconference that he had with a bunch of black people, uh, and I think y'all played it on y'all show. The way he talked to black people in that in that uh, teleconference, basically told them to kiss his behind. Yeah. So, and he told them what they're right, going to do, what, what he, he expected out of them, and what they're, what they're going to do. Exactly. Well, and he told him to stop. That's, that's what he stop did. all this stuff about bashing the police, and and you know and and support the police. So now you see a bunch of candidates, including the one that's that to be the potential mayor, saying to a, a journalist when he asked, "What are you going to do about poverty when you take office?" You heard her answer. She's going to unleash the cops. I heard her answer. And and if that and you're right, if the, if that interview was played on our local black talk station here, and they heard it, they wouldn't care. They would still vote for her. They would, they would applaud her, as a matter of fact. Well, I, I, listen, I, same, I, I might have to disagree with you. I think maybe some of the hosts might applaud her. But I think well, the, you're people, right, the, the people really don't know about a lot of these things. They don't know. They just really don't know. Well, and I think if our people yeah, became well, I, more aware of yeah, really what those people are doing, they would have a different thought about them. Well, I agree with you. I, I think most, if, if not all, the hosts would would applaud her, and well, and I think still a good number of the listeners would applaud her too. Although there there would be some of us who who would not, and I think most of them would be uh, black men who would not uh, applaud her. Remember now, um, and I would take it, and I, I don't know from listening, but out of this election here in Philadelphia, and I think it happened in other places. It was the lowest turnout. So black people, particularly, I think they said the lowest turnout since the 70s. Oh, yeah. I think it was 23.8% of people voted. It was a very low turnout. Yes. So to your your point of our dissatisfaction is also the opportunity, regardless of the presidential election, to be able at least to come together and define, if not anything, locally, how we want this thing to go in the future. Because when you look at the Democratic Party locally and in these locales that the presidential election will be sending their troops out to, to, you know, support me, even if I don't set you free, uh, it's going to be black ground troop, like a St- Stacey Abrams. You know, right, or absolutely. Like, or like people who are head of you know, in the Democratic Party locally. And so if we can start communicating and defining and making clear 
of what is it that we want out of the political machine, regardless who's in there and regardless who's running. I think that that would this is the opportunity time to the opportune time to do it because we're totally dissatisfied with what we're getting and it makes no sense. That's just absolutely. I agree with you. And again, we're going to have to. I don't. We're going to have to pull it off. We're going between now and November of twenty-four. Black men in particular, and, and you know, sisters too. We're going to have to get together and, like you said, make it known what what we want and expect from Democrats. Because, yeah, again, they're, they're black lackeys, uh, Sharpton, Abrams, and and black and black people within media, like the Roland Martins of the world. He, he's already doing it. Oh, well, if you you can't you can't uh, elect uh, you can't let a Republican get in because you know uh, the Supreme Court. If you if you don't control the Supreme Court, and we don't want them to control the Supreme Court, of course that's sort for a lot of them is well, uh, all they all they care about uh, is uh, abortion rights. That's all that's all they care about is getting their abortions. That's the thing with the black feminists. That's all they care about, and men like uh, you know Roland Martin and uh, Al Sharpton. So, I just wanted to call in and, uh, you know, chime, put my little uh, two cents in. And uh, I just want to say to y'all brothers, keep up the, the good work. We need, we need brothers like y'all. We need, we need the new black media, uh, you know, to talk uh, to our people. And most of our, um, a lot of our people are here, uh, the new black media. Thanks for your contribution, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to 504. 504, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, I wanted to um, thank you for the program this evening. Um, I'm listening, and I'm going to tell you, I'm just disgusted. I'm disgusted with black folks generally because we're allowing these things to continue to happen to us. I mean, we're listening to what's going on with the black farmers. We're listening to what's going on with the black politicians. And, I mean, you know, voters, black voters have gotten to a certain sophistication at this point that we really don't need leaders, black leaders, that's going to lead us to the trough no matter what. And actually, this would be the prime time to call for a national black boycott on the elections for 2024. (laughs) I don't see any other alternative. Of course, we're going to get hurt, but we get hurt no matter what we do anyway. So it's time to say we've had enough, and to prove we've had enough, we're not going to support. And let them deal with it that way and see what happens with them. And once they see and understand that we're serious, then they're going to want to negotiate. And that by, at that point, once we see that we have that kind of power, I don't think we need to negotiate. Negotiations should be over, but thank you for the show. Thank you for bringing the awareness to the country. 
I mean, it's terrible, and it's not getting any better. And and black people that are still hoping and dreaming, they're in the way as well, because the time for hoping and dreaming was yesterday, and that's that's over. Keep up the good work. This, this, this is Brother West, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, baby. Richard. Richard, hit your, hit your, hit your mic. No, oh, I think he might have. T- no, oh, how you doing there, sir? I, I, doing fine, thank you. I thought I recognized that voice. Okay. Hey, Richard, yeah. bro, bro, Brother West said something similar to the last caller. Right. Yeah, yeah. Only thing, only thing I, I, I would add, I would add, or to consider is that we have to be clear of what is it we want before. It's not about the elections. It's about what we want. And the other thing, identify um, honest, capable, um, committed, working leaders. Because if they, if we are going to deal with this, we need to have people in those positions who is going to be representatives of not of the machine, but of the people. But if well, we don't know who they are, we'll just get more of the same. Because they duplicating themselves like 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 I don't know what. Yes. Yep. Well, Brother Richard, uh, I, I appreciate that. But let me say this to you. I have watched decade after decade after decade pass. And black folks have come up with agendas that have never been met, that have never been considered to be met. And, I mean, everybody knows, everybody in the black community knows what's needed, what's necessary. So if we are just basically coming together for once to prove a point, to make a point. Nobody needs to know what we are, what, what our demands are, what we're going, where we're going, and how we're going to get there. But we're just making a point that we're pulling out whatever support we have from the Democratic Party to make a statement. And I do believe they hear it and things would possibly change. I'm not going to guarantee they're going to change. But if we make a heck of an impact on them and they lose the presidential election, then we're now in a position not to worry about the leaders that have been picked for us, but for us to begin to pick our own leadership in our individual communities. Yes. Support them and get them in the position to do the bidding for us. And if they don't do the bidding for us, well, we just, you know, go back to the to the records of El Capone and deal with what El Capone used to do. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, because black people do not fear anything happening to them, and that's why they do what they do. I, mm-hmm. yeah, I, agree, I agree with you there. They don't fear the community. That's why they sell us out. Wow. Brother, thanks for your work. Talk to you soon. Look forward to it. Thank you. Keep up the work. I'm going to go ahead and listen more. Peace. Peace now. Let's go to 602. 602. 
Yes, good brothers. Good evening. How are you, sir? I'm all right, good brothers. I agree with that last caller. Boy, I got both political parties. Now, um, you know, one thing that we should demand is wherever we make up the mass majority of the population, black people must control the economy and body politics mm-hmm. of that community. Yes. So that is one thing we can put in front of the black politicians and say, look, this is what we want. We want what we want this year. You know, and if they, if you if you can deliver this, step aside. Now you know there are there are some things developing that we have to take notice of though. Um you know in, in order for white supremacy to function, you know white supremacy has to recruit from the same group of people that they oppress and put them as the overseers over us. Now we see some movements taking place up there um, in Mr. Biden's cabinet. You, you see, he has a black um, secretary of defense there who is a general, right? Mm-hmm. And he just put that other black general there over the giant um, chief of staffs, see? So you got two black generals right there. Now, you know, anytime you see they start making moves like that, you know, they're getting ready to make a move on black folks. Mm-hmm. See? Anytime you see this, can uh, you remember when Colin Powell was there, they moved they move on the colored people, use Colin Powell to spearhead what they did in Iraq. When um, Obama was there, they got rid of um, Gaddafi, mm-hmm. right? Now we got these two generals, you know, and I'm telling you, the next move they're going to make is they're going into Africa. Mm-hmm. See? So what better face to use, two black faces, to do their dirty work in Africa? But you see what's happening in Africa right now. See? Now we have to remember, prior to the pandemic, Africa economy was going up, right? A lot of the countries were doing well. Boom, pandemic come, everything crash. <laughs> you know? Everything just crashed. Ethiopia crash, Ghana crash, you see, all those Kenya crash, all those economies that were doing well. So these people know what the hell they're doing, you know. They're not white supremacy is not static. They move, they keep moving, they are unrelenting. And I think that's their next move now. They said, look, we have to, they can't afford to let, you know, what they said, the business you said, you can't allow the African and the continent and the African here to link up. So they have to destabilize Africa. And then they'll send in their people in there to do the dirty work, you know. But again, I say, our people are not stupid. We ain't been on this planet being stupid, you know, this long. You know, yeah, we're going through some rough times now, but we have to remember, we are, we actually, we are, we were enduring slavery longer because well, we spent over 250 years in slavery. We just 100 and probably 50 years old from slavery right now. So, Yes, we see dynamics taking place, but our people, we're going we gonna to win this war. I am convinced, in spite of what you say, of what you say happening. And as the brother said from the, the Nubian network, he said, look, 
when all else fail to organize the people, conditions will. And I'm telling you, as the brother say, the conditions ripe now because everybody fed up with both of these clowns here, both of them. And they look like they fed up themselves. These white folks, they don't know which direction to go. <laughs> so, you know, this 2024 election here, we go see what will happen, you know. Anyway, keep on keeping on, good brothers. I appreciate your program. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Okay, now. All right. Let's go back to 215. 215. 215. Let's go to 646. 646. Hey, what's going on, um, Elegant and, and, and Richard? Um, I always have the question, based on the conditions that black people are in, if they choose not to support Biden again, which I really don't support, but based on the conditions that we are in, and let's say somebody that gets back in office like a Trump, and they have control of all of the houses, Senate and Congress. And based on what's going on in this country with immigrations, other ethnic groups moving forward, building and doing all of the necessary things to make themselves not only whole here, but in associations with their country. What the F you think will happen to black folks? Really, seriously, tell me how you think that if you allow the bad devil in office, because both of them are basically the same, the Democrats just don't sodomize you like the Republicans do. They just, they just what one calls use a little lube on you. Honestly. And, and let's be honest, with the conditions that we are in as a people, don't own nothing, don't manufacture nothing. You just talked about the farmers. The farmers can't even, and let's be honest, get their acts together to move forward as a collective. What do you really think going to happen to black folks? Now, are we going to use the notion that, oh, we don't survive enslavement? We don't did all of that. Yes, that's true. But look at where we are as a collective. We're not talking about individuals. We're talking about a collective in this country and our lack of growth as a collective, as a people, while all other ethnic groups in this country is growing and developing at a rate better than us, and the only one who's not is the Native Americans, and you can't expect them to, based on what was done to them just like was done to us. And you telling me or want me to believe 
that the brutal rapist is gonna do better by us than the more humane rapist. You still being buck broken. I mean, come on, man. We got to think this out. It's not like we we're in a position or have anything in place to sustain ourselves. It's not like we have anything in place to fulfill ourselves as a people. We don't have no type of leadership. Shadiki just told you what the NAACP is doing to us. I mean, come on, man. We got to think this thing out and stop attacking somebody like an ice cube. What should be done with ice cube is take his program and approve upon it. Anything that has a critique of what Ice Cube is saying, if we got real leadership, we'll bring them in the room and do the critique. But we don't do that. See, what we'll do is we'll critique Ice Cube under the auspice that the white man's program, a.k.a. the Democratic Party, is better. Instead of, like y'all do, always bitching about Roland Martin, the one thing I will do is give the man credit. He do put forward certain things. Now, do I agree with everything that he do? Not at all. But the bottom line is, ain't nobody else out there doing what the cat is doing. And what should happen is, he's supposed to bring Ice Cube in the room with these other so-called faithful Democrats and take his program and approve upon it. But no, we just going to totally diss him, talk about him, and do all of those things. And in the process, the white man just manipulating you to the point to where it is what it is. Because the bottom line is this. If you think that the life of black folks are going to get any better with the Republican Party having control, then, hey, go for it. I I ain't going to be here that much longer. So to me, I don't worry about it. And mine are in a strength position. I made sure I done left mine in the strength position. But collectively, as a people, if we be honest, every other ethnic group in this country is surpassing us except for the Native Americans. And Lord knows in the next 10 years what's going to happen to black people as this as I refer to them, Baba Louis get stronger, stronger, and their population grow and grow and grow. And matter of fact, all you got to do to understand the relationship between Latinos and blacks is look at the prison system in California. Well, let me say this. It's, it's not that other nationalities, uh, whether you're talking about uh, Latinos or surpassing blacks. That doesn't happen generically. This stuff is system, it's a, it's a systematic thing where these, 
these so-called other nationalities are surpassing black folks. I just read to you statistics in Chicago where the population is almost split evenly between Latinos, whites, and blacks. And you see the disparity. Even with Latino salary, Latino salaries is not even low as black folks. Their poverty rate is not as low as black folks. It's black folks is at the bottom. It's black folks is at the bottom in New York. It's black folks is at the bottom in Philadelphia. It's black folks is at the bottom in all these cities. That that's not something that just happens. This is not something that, that you can't just get it right. Our people just they, they can't do. They, no, this is a system that keeps you there. Okay. Black you folks think they're citizens. Black folks, no, I don't think it is. Black folks okay. think they're it's citizens. It's they're the not. System, but Elliot, Elliot, answer this one question. Who's in control of the system right now? Well, Europeans are in control of the system. They created okay, it. Okay, so when we, well, let's, let's, let's deal with it from a political perspective. Who's in control of the system right now? I just told you. It's the, it's it's white folks, right? But I'm talking Democrats or Republicans. That's, but that's that, what that I'm doesn't using matter. Uh, yeah, but that, 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 that doesn't matter whether they Democrats, Republicans, Green no, Party. No, it, it does, doesn't matter. It does matter in a sense, like I said earlier, that want to be a, just a little more gentler with you. The bottom line is the system is geared to keep black folks at the bottom. But the point of the matter is, if you go into a store and you have the opportunity to purchase something, what do you do? You try to look for the best price. You try to look for the best product. You try to look for something that's going to not only benefit you, but benefit those that you're dealing with. The problem in this country is, that there is a hatred for black people. There is a hatred for all people of color, but it is black people that take the burden of it. And unfortunately, we don't understand that this white man is our enemy. We think that we could supposedly work within the system to progress as a people, and that's not the reality, brother. That's just not that's just not the reality. Because the reality is the white man is never gonna give you the opportunity to do that. So you have to be well, intelligent that, that, enough but that's to why, make the right choice. That's who's why, gonna who's gonna give you somewhat of a fighting chance. That's why you heard the two that's, what not doing. that's why you heard the two men suggest their suggestion was to pull out of these national elections. Okay. Okay. Let's say that. Okay. Now answer this question. Answer this question. You pull out and by pulling out someone that will do you more harm gets in the office. Then, then what position are you in? You, you, you don't see. see you're already getting harmed. Say, you're already getting harmed. Do you more harm by pulling out, Elliot? This is the problem. Yeah, but wait a minute. Do you, you want somebody? Sm- out, can I just give you this point, okay, Elliot? Yeah, then, then we're gonna move on. Go ahead. Okay. If you pull out, right, and 
the person is in power that can do you just as much harm, then what happens to you? Because it's not like we collective as a people. It's not like we're in a situation to which what's going to happen is, and we done already seen it when it happened with Hillary Clinton and people didn't vote for her. Who was blamed for it? Black people were blamed for it. And because we're not a unit that collectively comes together, we won't be able to protect ourselves from that type of onslaught that will come after us. So anyway, we do it in a sense, we getting hurt. Because it's not like the people who pulled out are going to come together and unite as one to do the necessary things to improve our survival. Thank you, brother. Talk to you soon. <coughs> Let's go to 757. 757. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Hey, look, I, I wanted to talk about Roland, but I just heard the gentleman who just got off the phone. Let me say this to you. He set up a scenario and asked you, What's the difference between getting it done dry or with lube? Then he explains to you that regardless of which side you're on, you don't have an option, but you shouldn't take action against any of those events because he wants to see this binary. Here's the part I go along with Brother West and the other one that said it. And the reason I say it is because I've been listening to young folks and old and the mess that went on with Roland Martin that he's talking about, a perfect example happened, and I respond to it on Twitter. You know who uh, Ellie uh, Mistal is, right? The brother, the lawyer that does all the talking with the big afro, big gray, uh, silver gray afro. He came on Roland Martin's show, and this is what they said on Twitter. Roland Martin opens this bit by saying, I want you on because I want to tell these ignorant people out here, la da 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 downplaying Negroes as he always does. And he said that they don't understand that if they let the GOP get in, that they're going to lose the Supreme Court. Now, let me ask you something, because I know you gentlemen are pretty much up on contemporary history. Is it not the Supreme Court already dominated by the GOP six to three Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what sense does that statement make from either one of those gentlemen? I literally said on Twitter that I thought Ellie was a smart man. But if he's so much invested in the scare that black men will leave the Democratic Party, which is what what the Democrats are going through, they understand that that support is waning. So they're going to tell black men how ignorant they are for not doing it. Now, here's my point. I understand history in this country enough to understand that even if the worst thing happens is the GOP takes over all of Congress, here's something we do know. When the Democrats had the opportunity to play hardball and ensure Roe v. Wade, which really ain't our big thing as a people, and did no protections whatsoever for national labor relations or anything when Democrats were running. How are you going to scare us now that, watch this, which, which, which Christelle talks about, 
The Supreme Court is the only branch of the three that can veto anything the other two do. So AIS already in the slang, I hate to use that language. So they're bullshitting us when they tell you about what's going to happen if the GOP gets. You know what's going to happen? You're going to find out if Reverend Barber can really get some white folks to come out the pews and stand in the damn streets with you. Be strong, my brother. <laughs> Thanks for your contribution. <laughs> let's go, let's go to two one five before we close it out. Two one five. Good evening, brother Elliot and brother Richard. Once again, brother Otis, beautiful, beautiful brother Otis, right on point, man. You know, brother, I agree with brother Jay to a large degree too on 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 the, on the thing, Elliot, because I've always said this, Elliot and Richard, as a sixty one year old man. And stuff. He, Brother Jay is absolutely right. This country, with their racism and hatred, they do hate people of color, whether they be black, Puerto Rican, Asian, whatever. But, and the notes I use the word but, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, and the time for we can listen to audience, but it's a special hatred for our people. Because I've been around white bigots, and I know they complete bigots because I heard their mindset. They don't like people of color, but man, but they'll be willing, and in some cases, to give these other people a break. Or any, or any form of a reparations. Like, look at the Japanese. They got reparations after they was interred over here in World War Two. But when it comes to our people, these biggest don't want us to have nothing. They do got a special, and that's undeniable, but they do got a special hatred for black folk, man. Matter of fact, they so diabolical, Ellen Richard. They even against some of our brothers from the continent to come over there a little play. Though they hate them, too. But when it comes to us, the so-called... Of uh, in chattel slaves, they hate us with a passion, man. It's just like it's just real. It's, it is what you know. But let me say this, Ellen, and stuff. You know, Brother Otis made a good point, and and I've tried, and I've beat this drum time and time again, Brother Elliot and Rich, and I say this with all due candor. You know, on special now, Black Teresa Radio Station. I get so tired when I heard black people say, "Well, you know, we, you know, the, the, we, you know, the the Republicans got the they have they have they have, they had control of the, the 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 House right now, and the Democrats got a slim majority in the in the in the Senate, or, or you got a Republican president at the time, Trump. Now you got Biden, and we can't get nothing done. See, I, mean, I get so tired of that nonsense because, like Brother Otis correctly said just now. See, black people got a short-term memory. They remember what they want to remember because they, cause it's all about the waving pine pounds. When Barack Obama took office in January of '09, the Democrats was controlled everything. And let me, I'm gonna say this clear so everybody can understand what Brother Joe's saying. When the, they only, not only just had the presidency, they had the House and the Senate. Barack Obama and the Democrats, like Brother Otis, they could they could have used that bully pulpit. To get everything done, they could have used the, whether it was labor, whether it was protecting Roe versus Wade, because there was a clear majority in all three of them. After the, when the midterms came up in 2010, and the, and the Democrats lost control of the House and the Senate, then you heard all the excuses. Well, we can't get nothing done. Well, damn it, you had you had two damn it two years to get things. You could have used that bully pulpit and push things forward for black people. But what do you hear Barack Obama dumb, dumb behind talk about, well, I'm going to reach across the aisles and, and stuff with bipartisanship. And Ellie, don't, don't forget Ellie and Richard. What the hell was Barack Obama thinking? Because Mitch McConnell, he wasn't in office for what, what, two weeks or three weeks? When Mitch McConnell, the racist bigot from Kentucky, the Senate majority leader said out of his own mouth, me and my party are going to work hard to make sure you become a one-term 
already knew you dealt with that kind of racist mindset. Why the hell wouldn't you try to? Why wouldn't you try to use your presence as a as a, pre, as a bull pit to try to push things forward for poor working class people, man? See, this is the kind of stuff you get tired of, Ellen Richard. This nonsense, this game plan, man. You keep talking about how bad these people are, and you know how racist they are, but you want to have bipartisanship with these people. Knowing these people is not going to play ball with you, but who wound up getting hurt in the long run? Not you, a Barack Obama. Not Mitch McConnell, but poor working class people. They're the ones that get hurt because. Mitch McConnell's a millionaire. Barack Obama, at the end of the day, we have to call it for what it is, like an umpire in baseball. We call, we call the balls and the strikes the way you see them. At the end of the day, Mitch McConnell is, is well off. Barack Obama's well off. Remember Michelle just brought a big mansion up there in uh out there near the Kennedy and Martha Vineyards, up there by the Kennedy compound. So these people are well off. And you see the same nonsense going on today with this debt selling. At the end of the day, uh, Brother Ellen Richard, Donald Trump's going to be okay. I mean, not Donald, or he's already okay. But Joe is rich. He's going to be okay. The, 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 the race is bigot that's over in the Republican Party. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, he's he, the Speaker of the House. He's well off. So at the end of the day, these people are not being hurt by these parties. It's just poor people, mainly poor black people. Because like you said, Elliot, and you was telling the Brother Jay just now, and again, Brother Jay made some very good points in your conversation. But like you said, Brother Jay, the facts bear it out, Elliot. You didn't you, you, you use Chicago, right? You used New York and Philadelphia. Who did you see at the bottom of the poll with all those things? What did you say? Who, who, who people was it? Our people, right? Black people. There you go. See, there's no accident and stuff, man. And again, Elliot, this system shows, my, it backs up with my point. This country, hate, they don't like Puerto Rican people and Asians and stuff like that, Indians, but they will make, they will get them a leg up before they give you a leg up in, in a heartbeat. They got this special hatred for black people. So there's no accident, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, that when you look at all these, the, 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 the poor and stuff, the, the people that's always at the bottom of the social economic it's always black people. Like I said, like, like, like I, I, I put to your attention earlier, the article in the Daily News here in Philadelphia. In the last 25 years, the income for black people has remained the same. Black people's income per, per capita has not improved one iota. Their paychecks, their income has stayed the same by even Latinos. This is Philadelphia I'm talking about now, by Latinos, Asians, everybody else has got some kind of Increase may have not been a lot, but they did get some kind of increase where ours to stay stagnant. It stayed the same. And again, in a lot of these cases, LA, whoever you've been seeing running these cities, these Democrats, whether it be white or black, yeah, and yet our people still out here and poor and stuff. And again, LA, that's no accident, man. And this is why, like Brother James, they called, he called right, and then the brother called right after James about the frustration with the Democrat Party. Because at some point, LA, we can't keep going. And I and I get off LA so you, so you can you know, go to the next caller. We can't keep going down this. We can't keep can't. You know, at some point, LA, like Brother James said, and the brother caught after him. We have got to somehow, as black men and even sisters, that's down too. Because I'm, I'm I'm taking on all comers, whether it be black men or black women. We have got to somehow take our stand against this Democrat Party and, and, and call them out and, and, and call out their black lackeys because you know they're going to send out the Sharptons, the Roland Martins, the Stacey Abrams, you know, with the scare tactics. Oh, 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 Brother Elliot or Brother Richard, if you don't vote for Joe Biden, you're going to get behind DeSantis. Oh, you're going to get Trump back in there. And you know, Elliot, we all know that these are some despicable people. There's no question about it. Trump is despicable, so is DeSantis. But, but uh, well, we can survive these devils. We can survive all of them. They, my, my DeSantis don't scare me. The little Trump scam. We, we can survive eight years of Reagan, Bush, all them bigots and stuff like Clinton and all them. Man, that stuff don't scare nobody, but, they, but you, they're going to come out with their tactics and stuff to scare our people and stuff like that. And, and it's truth be told, 
black black people got more hurt by Clinton and Biden policy with this three strikes you out than these damn thing Trump ever did anyway. Because these people in Colorado, not to say Trump is not a demon, but the point is that when you look at their policies, who has hurt black people more than that three strikes you out and lock them up and throw away the key, Joe Biden and, and Bill Clinton. So, I mean, we have to be honest about these things. Stop saying, you know, all this here, uh, pom-pom, we just tell the truth. And, uh, you know, I have to say this, Elliot, uh, because, again, a picture is worth a thousand words. You heard that expression, right, Elliot and Richard? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you know, Donald Trump made a comment a few years ago. His brother James, who called earlier, brought that to my attention. He says, he said, oh, he said they call me. He said people like Reverend Sharpton call me a racist. Jesse Jackson. He says, but I got photos of me with these men. He said, he said I had dinner with these men on number of cases. And what makes it so disingenuous? The Al Sharpton. See, you know, we got this. Like you said, like, where's the black media to hold these people accountable? the time for the listener, and I close with this, Ellen, to listen to what Brother Joe is saying. This is why people, because like you said, we don't hold these people accountable. When Donald Trump made that accusation to get the Central Park fire, remember when he said these brothers was rapists and all that stuff, said they need to be executed and stuff. After, Ellen, after this was after, not before now, but after it happened, Elliot, after Trump made these wild accusations accusing these brothers, Guess who was guess who was seen on numerous occasions having dinner together and arms around the the, the man, Donald Trump and Al Sharpton. Now, but remember, you but Sharpton gonna get on this show now and call the man a racist. But even after this man made those racist, those false accusations against these six or seven six brothers and stuff like that, you still was out there breaking bread with this man. Bill O'Reilly the same way. This man can insult black people, saying black people was in the service restaurant throwing food around and stuff like that. They, it's interesting they, they didn't throw food around. They act civilized as if black people go to restaurants and act this way. But yet, having Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, all these racist bigots. So we got to start calling these people out, Ellie, because they, like, think, so like, they, 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 one, they make all kinds of side deals with these people on the side. I think at one time, I think at one time he toured around with Gingrich. Yes, he did. He was hanging out with Newt Gingrich. I was hanging out with Newt at one time. That is true, Elliot. See, we had, see, see these people got to be caught out because it does damage to our people. Because you know what these niggas be doing behind the closed scene with these racist bigots and stuff like that. So, my, so what Donald Trump basically said, Elliot, he says that Sharpton called me a racist, Jesse Jackson. But, Elliot, the pictures don't lie. They don't racist Fox News. is racist, but they told the truth. They showed pictures the other year, Elliot, of, of Jesse Jackson and Sharpton with Donald Trump on many occasions with their arm around Trump praising him. Matter of fact, uh, Sharpton gave Trump an award in several years. But, so, I mean, you know, these people, they, they, they sit there and do all this, this stuff with these people they claim as racist and detrimental towards black people, but you got some kind of friendship with these people, man, you know? See, see this thing, and again, I would just about these people are not made the, the, they they not made the answer for that. They're not held accountable. And so, therefore, I like the beat goes on. So, who I'm getting hurt in the process we do, because whatever deals that Sharpton and Jesse doing behind the scenes with these people, they're getting rich and rich while the average black man or woman out here struggling. They staying poor. Their kids living in, in bad neighbors with crime is out of hack. Poor schools with the bestest in it. You know, in food deserts, we don't have decent supermarkets. All this stuff continues to happen to the, to the same black people that support the Sharptons and the Jessies of the world. While they're getting rich and richer by hanging with these people, whatever deals they're making with the, the Hannity's, the Newt Gingers, whatever this, this crowd they're hanging with and stuff who they say racist towards our people but they got some kind of friendship with these men so again who gets hurt we do and that's why these people have got to be called out somehow they got to be made the answer for that and that's why shows like time from the wake and the others called nelson all these kind of shows like y'all at least y'all can put an eye y'all can at least put the microscope on these people the magnifying glass we can't 
they can't get away unscathed. Because, and, and lastly, I'll say what they think my boy, my man said with the Democrat Party. We have got to, as black men and women, between now and 2024, start holding this Democrat Party and say, y'all can keep sending your shocks, your rolling marks, your space able, but it's not going to work. We are not going to be scared, and we are tired of her about the Republican boogeyman, DeSantis, and Trump, and all. They don't, them devils don't scare nobody. We got to start holding these people accountable and call them out and stuff like that. Because again, if we don't do this, Ellen, this is our last thing. We don't do this, we're going to continue to get disrespected and, and mistreated by the Democrat Party. At some point, this nonsense has got to end. Now, thanks, man, for letting me express myself. I put me on mute, and I'll listen to the remaining you know, well, minutes well, of your listen, show. Thanks, well, brother, Ellen Richard. Before you go, uh, you, yes, he- you, you heard uh, Denise Clay. Yes. Who, who was a former host. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, Sherelle Parker. Oh, you, my God. You heard, you heard what she said. The white journalist asked her, what are you going to mm-hmm. do on your first day of office to, to deal with poverty? And you heard her answer. So maybe some folks will get on that, that the morning programs or any of them programs and demand some type of answer in reference to that. Can I say this one last thing on that, Elliot? And you've been so generous with your time, Elliot. I was so emotional just now talking about Sharpton and all that. That, that was one thing I meant to discuss when, I, when you let me back on just now. Elliot, if any black person that's listening here in Philadelphia or even around the country, and I, and I, and I say even around the world, because we've got a caller that calls in from the U.K. that calls this show sometimes and listens. If they heard Sherelle Parker, that don't disturb you. See, Elliot, think about this, Brother Elliot Richard. If the, if, the, if the white guy had asked her about public safety, she gave that answer. I wouldn't still like it, but I would, I would have to say, well, it, it, he, he did ask about public safety. He asked about poverty. He didn't ask about no damn public safety. He asked about poverty, which you know and I know, Elliot. That's refused a lot of this in crime in our communities, not making streets, but we, you know, we live in the real world. That's causing a lot of I mean, Hopelessness, hopelessness, despair, and degradation. That's why you see a lot of this crime in the community. So if the man asked about poverty, her answer is about I'm going to stick the police on black people, translator. I'm going to send the police on these Negroes. Beat head, you know, bust heads, lock them up, throw away the key. That was very disturbing. So if you, was, if you got any kind of conscience of black man or woman, if you weren't disturbed by Chabelle's Parker's answers, something is wrong, man. Because if, if Jeff Brown or Alan Dumb make them same comments, it's outrage from the black community. But like, like, but like you say, Ellie, some of the callers, the host, mainly all the hosts up for food. They 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 don't have no problem with Sherelle Parker said, and, and some of the misguided callers, they they waving pom poms. They don't have a problem with her. But but you're right, Elliot. Her comments was very disturbing, man. And again, I'm not surprised, Elliot, because I know the woman's track record. I don't expect nothing from Sherelle Parker. She gets in there and stuff. I expect her to be be just as dangerous and hard on black people as any of her white predecessors have. I don't expect if she does anything. I would be shocked because I know her mindset, man. And 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 the answer she gave to the reporter was very disturbing. How the hell you want to equate poverty and stuff? Your, your first answer, your only answer, come out of your mouth is I'm a. I'm gonna have I'm gonna back the police when they do the right thing or they going this. I mean, come on, man, the man said, and so her saying something like, "Well, my administration going to be going to have programs in place to address this, the systemic poverty." Because at least look, look at it. Last point, Rebecca Brown, who I voted for, the great Jewish lady. Even if she was lying to me, I'd rather respect somebody who having no sense. When I talked to her in person about that, that's what she said when I asked about poverty and crime. She said, well, my administration, she said, we're going to take a holistic approach. We're going we're gonna to deal with crime. We're going to deal with poverty. Because she said these things didn't happen overnight. She's going to take a holistic approach. She gave a, and she's a white Jewish woman. She gave a way better answer than Sherelle Parker said. She didn't come up there and say, I'm going to throw law enforcement at the problem like that. I mean, that's very disturbing coming out of a black woman's mouth, man. You know, so, hey, you know, man. 
Thanks, man. For, for let me express myself. I, I, I listen to the rest of the show, and I, it's a good show tonight, uh, Lady Richard. Uh, peace. Peace. Mm-hmm. Richard, we come to the end of another program, man. Yes, yes. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you. Before we leave tonight, uh, abbreviated lineup. Time for an awakening. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives with Brother Ushi. Always interesting topics and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. <clears throat> to 1 p.m. Later on in the week on Thursday, Mississippi on the move. Brother Patrick Moomin and Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi. I got to talk to Brother Patrick and see uh, see how he see how he feels, Richard, about Stacey Abrams joining him down. <laughs> uh, uh, on Fridays, time for awakening is back from eight until, and on Saturdays <clears throat> from seventy nine from seven to nine, the elders of Sankofa with Doctor Janine James. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Are you watching your children playing after school?
save the children.